Those must be comfortable shoes. I bet you could walk all day in shoes like that and not feel a thing. I wish I had shoes like that. My feet hurt. Mom always said it. there's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes. Where they going? Where they been? I've worn lots of shoes. The Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. So, Gabe, that undisclosed location is going to be your house. I'm not sure if you knew that or not, but that's where we're headed. You're going to help me uh, put some rocks in the in the front flower bed then, because I got oh, some rocks no. coming. Yeah, I got a half a, half a ton coming. Half a ton of rocks. Yes. Man. Fun times. I got to do that in my lunch hour. It's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. Maybe just, we're not going to go there. You're just going to skip the exit that comes to my house and keep going south. Why not? You've convinced me. <laughs> Gabe, somebody, you said something on a podcast recently that made somebody think that you might have finally set up your turntable. Is that right? Ooh. Yes, I did. I, Holy you know, <clears throat> shit. You know, usually I get two-day weekends, but now with the holiday, you know, 4th of July, I had a three-day weekend, so I said, okay, I, I have to have some time to make some room to set up this turntable. And I did. Because you hate America, too. You're, you're not interested in doing any of that America stuff. So you're like, fuck no, America. I don't eat this. meat, so I have no hot dogs. And I'm, I don't like fireworks either, so I didn't do that. You don't like fireworks? No, too loud. <laughs> you know what they say? If it's too loud... You're too old. Turn it down. <laughs> if it's too loud, you're extra proud. What about... um? Uh, not dogs or stuff. Did you ever try any of those like fake meat products? Yeah, that's it's like rubber. Yes, meat. It's like rubber. It's like but rubber. But the uh the Beyond sausages, the Beyond Brat Burgers. Oh my god, those are good. Yes, those, those are, are good. really really good, and they're convincing as well. So why don't you just eat one of those for for uh Fourth of July and pretend you love America? <laughs> I can pretend like the rest of them. Uh huh. So, Ben, uh, how's that midlife maiden fandom going? <laughs> well, it hasn't gotten off the ground yet. No, <laughs> I took a you detour. You don't have a favorite yet. I don't, but I but I think about it every day. So that's I feel like that's the first step. And sure. and and by the way, somebody who's had a week longer on their perhaps journey towards new music than I have is Gabe Rodriguez. How's your replacements going? <laughs> Funny you asked. I never, I never looked it up. 
I looked up Fanny. <laughs> I looked up Fanny. Yeah, that was that, that was uh, that was actually pretty shocking. Did I was you check out the videos. Yes, they can pretty jam. Stuff. Yep. Yes, I, f- I felt like I was watching something that was not authentic from the time because it was so good. You know what I mean? It just looked too good. Too good to be authentic. Hmm. It was just weird, like I, you know, watching something from the seventies that you never saw before, and then you see it now, forty years later. Right. It's almost like you don't know everything that's happened. Yes. Yes. Right. It's almost like there are some blind spots in your past that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if you. Yeah, that was good. Sort of checked in on. But when I tried to look up the replacements, I just I couldn't get my keys, my hands to click the keyboard. To <laughs> nah, maybe later. Maybe later. Not today. <laughs> what about Summer of Soul? Have you dived into Summer okay. of Soul? Summer of Soul. What is that? It is. I will be shocked if there's a better movie that comes out this year. It's uh, that documentary about uh, the Harlem Heritage Fest that went on in 1969, the same summer as Woodstock, and and uh, Questlove got a hold of all the footage. And I just say, give all the footage that's ever been shot to Questlove and let let him make all the movies from now on because it is great. Summer Mar- of Marilyn Nakou will make you cry like a baby. That happened to me. Yeah. What you was know who Marilyn McCoo is, right, Gabe? From the Fifth Dimension, but she was also on nice. a Star Search? No, no. Solid was, Gold. Solid Gold. Oh, my God. I, I knew it. Yeah. Dionne yeah. Warwick was first, and then she came second. That's right. Marilyn uh, came after Dionne Warwick. Have you seen the Dionne Warwick uh, television show skit that they do on Saturday Night Live? No. Do yourself a favor. It is really, really funny. The, the, the psychic stuff? Mm, no, I guess uh, Dion Warwick sends really funny tweets about like who the hell is Kesha and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> it's it's really funny. You've seen it, right, Ben? I have. It's wonderful. Uh, Scott, let me try to extrapolate what you're saying about Questlove. Go. Cool. Uh, my impression of what makes this the perfect thing and why you'd want him to hand over all the why you'd want to hand him over all the footage is because he. He does that thing that I think a lot of these documentaries struggle with, where it's like, okay, I'm giving you most of these performances, maybe not quite the whole song most of the Mm -hmm. time, because I'm also trying to give you the context. Right. And I think that it's hard to get that balance right. I usually watch these things and I'm like, wait, I want more context or wait, I want the rest of that song. But I never felt that in this documentary. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. The other thing that's really interesting about what he does is, the drumming scenes are never out of sync. You're never going to get that with Questlove. He's going to make sure that that's the beat and then that's the right tom. You know, so uh, that's cool. That you know, a documentary made by a drummer who gives a fuck about stuff like that. Well, I was, you know, I did a whole podcast about the Woodstock movie last year, right? And uh, one of the questions that I had after watching Woodstock last year was, who the fuck is singing? these Sly and the Family Stone songs because Uh, it looks like Sly's singing it, but he's nowhere near a microphone and what the fuck. And this answers my goddamn question beautifully. Well, here's what's interesting. Clears up the mysteries. Right. And here's what's interesting about Sly. And my question walking out of it was, was like, all right, he's definitely, as they say, like a proto prince. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, and the band is tight, like James Brown's band. Mm-hmm. And you, you're like thinking, now, was he like an asshole to work for like those guys were? 
because the band is so tight. And then you think, and then you watch him, and the way he like he's so comfortable giving other people the spotlight, you think mm-hmm. maybe not. Maybe they were just that tight, and he didn't have to be a jerk with those guys, you know. And he wasn't finding people every every time they missed a note or something like that. Yeah, uh, I haven't looked. At, I haven't looked into it yet, but I'm going to sit with that idea for you know a few more days. There was he was barely mounting a comeback maybe 10 years ago i remember reading a bunch of articles about him or at least one in-depth one uh-huh. you know where he'd been sort of like pegged as like a crack oh junkie uh, but he was making moves like he was gonna have a resurgence but that never happened well here's the other thing about the movie is that and about sly is that i always it made me realize the genius and brilliance of everyday people like to me that was just a song that was you know i heard since i was a little kid but i never really thought too much about it i was like yeah it's a cute song it's a brilliant song i mean it is so good and his vocal is so so good like i mean i just get choked up thinking about it i mean it it if nothing else you you i I walked away from the movie with that so at your next G-Man residency, you're going to do that to end every night, I hope. That would be yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, speaking of awesome, Gabe Rodriguez, I don't know if I'm late on the bandwagon and you've done this with other Local H albums, but your current track-by-track analysis of Hate Killer is one of my favorite things to read over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? What a yeah. writer. And I love that album so much, and it's just great to to read your thoughts about it. I've never been accused of being a good writer, but I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, here's one of two things I'd like to say about that. The first, Gabe sends me a text. He's like, well, you know, uh, I'm no Edgar Allan Poe, but I'm (laughs) writing this stuff. And I'm like, hmm, Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, yeah, great writer, but, you know, it's it's like, (laughs) you know, most people are like, I'm no Hemingway, but, you know, it's like, I'm no Edgar Allan Poe. I'm like, okay. He was the first writer, that, the first one that came to mind. Okay, but anyway, I, I because we got this bubblegum colored vinyl coming on Friday, available at GMP Records, localage dot com, uh, for Hate Killer. You know the third pressing. <laughs> I figured we would uh, hype hype it up a little bit. Yeah. And there's eleven tracks on here. I kind of timed it out so when I got to the last song and I reviewed each song, that I'd have the records in my hand and we can start shipping them out. I say we. I mean me. So right. it's it's been fun. I mean I. I Obviously, I like the record. I love the record, but you know, certain songs have little things in them that people may or may not have heard or, or understand or know the meaning of that I the way I don't know them. Right. So I just figured I'd write something about each song, and I'm up to uh, Leon and the Skin and the Game of Skin right now, but I haven't finished it, so I got to do that for the podcast. Well, here's what's fun for me, Gabe. I didn't even know you listened to the record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know you cared. So. uh that's fun. And, you know, I mean, uh, making sure that we made records that Gabe would like has always been the priority in the band. So <laughs> sure. I mean, I'm not kidding. So no, it's, it. uh, it's, uh, um, it's nice. It's nice to know that, you know, he at least listens to it once. I'd, I'd listen to it, but uh, the thing is, we I don't like get Gabe, it, Gabe is the Katie to your Hubble, I believe. I don't know what that means. Uh, I was just going to say, Sometimes I get lyrics in my head that are wrong, you know? So I tried to look, look them up on the internet because their handwriting is so small on the, on the vinyl. So there was a line in one of the songs that talk about, uh, let's do it in the road. What's, what is that? Gig Bag Road. Yeah. And that's I definitely said, 
That's definitely a, a why don't we do it in the road? Let's do it in the road. Why don't we? Yeah, that's definitely a, a, a reference to why don't we do it in the road? Yeah, but when I heard it the first time, I never heard that. I always thought you said we're doing it rogue. Mm. <laughs> so I, I never got the Beatles reference, but now I do. So. I, I like that. I mean, you know, like for years, uh, half of the stuff that Robert Plant was saying, I had no idea. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of that mushmouth lineage. <laughs> but it's been fun, and I, I can't wait to, to get to the end of it because, uh, you know, I got something to say about your song, every song. Maybe okay. I'll, maybe I'll do it again. Yeah, do, do it for other records. I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Pe- people seem to really be into it. Yeah, so I'm not late to the party. This is the first time you, you've done this. Yes. This is the, yeah, this is the first time I've done it. This, is, this yeah. is a new feature that Gabe has introduced. I mean, technically, when I did my zine back in the day, my Good and Plenty zine, I was a rock critic because people sent me, you know, demos and CDs, not, not CDs, cassettes and stuff. <laughs> That's and right. I would review them. I would review them. So, yes, I mean, I'm not a rock critic, but I play one on TV. Whatever. Right. Well done. Well done. Speaking of Herb Rosen, did we get a lot of blowback from that Herb Rosen episode? <laughs> no, amazingly not. P- people... Seem to love it. We so, got a lot of comments, but none of them bad that I could tell. Well, you know, oh, one guy said Herb betrayed the podcast at the, around the part where Herb was saying he doesn't like podcasts. Oh, right, right, right. Well, I, I sort of, I, I, uh, I uh, hoodwinked him there. I mean, I, I definitely cornered him. It was funny to watch your reaction and then him try to talk <laughs> his way out of it, and it was like, it was like, uh-huh. you know, it was revenge because Gabe, I don't know you you remember. Um, when we used to wait in line outside of Fireside Bowl. I do remember. Fireside Bowl. I okay. remember a little bit. So I forget who we were. We had gone to see there, but we were in line, and this car drives by, and and we get egged. And, like, I got egged in the nuts. Do you remember that? <laughs> Vaguely. Very okay. slight. So an egg comes sailing uh, out of a car right into my nuts, and... Uh, and, you know, it sucked. And I felt like an, a jerk. And I felt like an idiot and blah, blah, blah. And we went into the show. And yeah, I don't even think I could enjoy myself. Anyway, so years later, talking to Herb. And he's like, yeah, ha, ha, ha. We used to drive by uh, <laughs> Fireside and egg those idiots in line. And I'm just like, oh, I was one of those idiots. <laughs> so anytime I can get some revenge on him, I am down with it. When did he tell yeah. you this? Within the last year, I just found out. I just found out about this within the last year. This is not something that I've been living with for years. This is a fairly new uh, scab that's been ripped off. <laughs> this me. is just like his Brian St. Clair story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And I and I forgot to bring that up, but but at least I I cornered him on on that on that thing. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, yeah, it's not hilarious. Oh yes, it is. It it's it it's hurtful. It was did hurtful. it did it hurt or was it just a big mess and you were embarrassed because the pants were? Well, here's the thing: it was a really hard egg and it didn't even break. Oh, now, I don't know what that says about my crotch, but <laughs> the egg did not break. You know, so it just, I mean, it hurt, but it did not make a mess. Maybe they were throwing hard boiled eggs or something. At you. Yeah. Maybe it was. Maybe that's the that's the joke, right? Let's throw hard boiled eggs at people. 
because <laughs> who wants who wants to make a mess? But at least you weren't taking your. What did he say? Take. What does he do? He takes his balls for a walk. What's the thing where you just have your balls outside of your pants? The ball walk is what it ball was called. Walk. Yeah. Now I thought about cutting that bit. Mm-hmm. There's a few bits I cut, and one yeah. of the bits, and there was a few bits that I cut for obvious reasons, but there was this <laughs> one bit about the show in Florida where we were opening up for Motley Crue. And there was a couple of things I was going to cut, but then I kept going. Remember when uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, was rated X or NC-17? And like, well, what can we cut? And they said, nothing. Like, there's nothing you can cut. It's going to get an (laughs) NC-17. It is so uh, upsetting. There's, you know, this. And I was looking at the story or listening to the story that he was telling, I was like, it's all super depressing and upsetting. It's it's all got to go. It was like so. the Bon Scott of stories, and, and Henry is the Bon Scott of serial killer movies. It's so sleazy, you just can't. There's nothing you can do to unsleaze it. Yeah, but there's no there's no joy. No. You know, it, it, it sleaze without the joy. But I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to ask Gabe. I need to hear some more details. This sounds like one of the greatest things ever. And really, Scott, what a what a friend you are to to force Gabe into this to get a, a signature from what's her name from the Cardigans. Oh my God, that must have been amazing. How did you hear about this? That you told it. <laughs> that came up in the episode last week. Did we? I got a that? picture. I think that's no, still no, no. We, our our, no, our dressing room, the dressing room was right next to the cardigans, and Scott knew I was a big fan. I'm a huge fan of the cardigans, and yeah, he's like, too. "All right, let's go, let's go, let's go talk to Nina." I'm like, "Well, I guess, okay." I would never have done it on my own, and he right. just went up and introduced himself and said, "Hey, you know, this is my buddy," and and said, "Can we take a picture?" And she signed something for me, and and uh, you know, she spoke pretty good English. I, I was I was impressed. Ooh, you were impressed with her English. She seems She's probably pretty, pretty impressed with your English too. <laughs> <laughs> but then they were talking Swedish the whole time in the, mm. in, the, in the room next door, so I couldn't. I didn't know if they were making fun of us or what. I don't know. Well, they're like, they're, there's some nerds next door, and they're listening to us. We must talk <laughs> Swedish from now on. Did you get to see their set, Gabe? Yes, we videotaped. We videotaped it and watched it from the above the stage. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, he. He sold it. He sold it on the black market. <laughs> Did you? No, but it, it was it was fun. I mean, I, I've seen him a handful of times, and that was one of them. What album from, were they touring on for that show? Probably the... Uh, the Love Fool record, right? Yes, What's the, the Love Fool record? record. Is it, is it Love Fool? Is it, is it First Band on the Moon? That sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. With the uh, Iron Man cover on it? Yeah, that's great. I like that. Is the No, there's like two later? Is the Long Gone Before Daylight or something? Long Gone Before Daylight went, is their is their best record yeah, as far that's as I'm their concerned. Best record. And they sort oh of my be, God. became more country and well, more indie sounding. When did she start dating Nathan from Shudder to Think? I think that was around that time because uh right after that record he's he's got, you know, his name he, in there somewhere. He quit right after he's like, <laughs> I don't need Shudder to Think anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but it's around that time. But uh that's wow, I can't believe uh I don't I don't talk to anybody about that record. That's a great record. It's yeah, you like to keep so, keep it quiet, like Fight Club. <laughs> Don't talk about Long Gone Before Daylight. That's the first rule of Long Gone Before Daylight. <laughs> I still never seen Fight Club. No, no, I gotta watch it one of these days. It's is pretty it, good. Is it good? I think it's great. All right, I'll write that down. Have you seen Seven? Uh, maybe. I, I don't it's, know. It's a scary ass movie. 
Maybe not. I like, I like when you call The Howling a scary-ass movie. The Howling, that's a scary-ass movie. <laughs> it is. I can't even watch it. When they bubble up with those, turn into the boat, the wolf, I can't watch it. <laughs> Have you seen Scanners? Talking about bubbling up, there's a lot more bubbling up that happens at the end of Scanners. That's my favorite bubbling up. Mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I mean, I'm glad that neither of you are working on anything to um, broaden your horizons. The two no. things that both of you said were, you were going to do. Yeah, watch. I, I will. I will. I've had company. It just didn't seem. I didn't want to share my Iron Maiden quest with my mom and sister. No. For the last mom, what do you think of. <laughs> what's a better song, Invaders or Run to the Hills? Do you like this song about pillaging or this song about pillaging? Yeah. I heard Invaders the other day at the bar, Gabe. I think you just like the word pillaging. I, I think that's what it is. Why? When when have I used pillaged before? I don't know. You just did. Isn't that part of the verse, part of the chorus in that song? Invaders, plundering. <laughs> I think it's plundering. I don't know if they say pillaging. They definitely say plundering. Marauding. It's Marauding. Actually, it's my least favorite song on the record. I think it's starting to become my favorite. Hey, look, everybody. It's Jeff Murphy. How you doing? I'm good. Hey, it's Scott Lucas. I know you. There I am. <laughs> and two guys I've never seen. Oh, no. You might know Gabe, too, right? Maybe not in person or, or oh. face-to-face, but uh, we've met a few times. Oh, Gabe, I, I remember you from the studio. Yeah. He's been over to Short Order Recorder a few yeah. times. Absolutely. I had Absolutely. a lot more hair. Don't play dumb, Gabe. Don't, don't play dumb. <laughs> Jeff, where are you? You're not in Zion anymore. No, I live in Wisconsin now. Okay. I, I've uh, crossed the border into uh, uh, Pleasant Prairie. Oh, you, you've said, I, I've done all I, all I can for Zion. I'm done. I, I <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I was a pretty substantial contribution. I have to. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, Zion, um, uh, Gary moved up here first and he kept saying, you know, you got to get out of there. You got to get, you know. Yeah. So, I remember when you were getting civically involved and, and I remember like it was about the alcohol thing. Because like Zion, a lot of people don't know. Uh, Shoes are from Zion, local H is from Zion. Uh, but a lot of people don't know that Zion was founded as a theocracy. And, and one of the rules was that you can't have alcohol, right? I mean, there were tons of rules, but that was one of the ones that lasted the longest, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but, but crazy things were outlawed. I mean, Gabe, are you from, are you from Zion as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I was born in Waukegan, but I, I lived in Zion for my high school years, so yeah. Okay, so you know, I mean, and, and you know, growing up as a kid there, you're oblivious to all that crap. But as as we got older, it dawned on us, especially as as a band, that um, there's, there's no place to play. There's no. no clubs, there's no bars, there's none of that stuff. I mean, when you're young, um, I actually lived right outside the city limits growing up. But um, ironically, um, the sandlot that was directly behind my house uh, growing up became pit stop. The, the one, oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> the one bar in uh, in the city. Um, and, uh, you know, the founding fathers, or I should say the, uh, the administration at that time tried to create a donut and say, OK, this we've annexed all this land. This is all now in the city of Zion, except this one building. You know, because they wanted right. to still say, oh, we don't have alcohol. So they created this donut and um, it went to the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken. And they said, you can't do that because then you can just 
go into a neighborhood and cherry pick and say that house is in and that house is out and, and you don't get police protection, you don't get fire protection, you don't get the city services, things like that. So, um, but Zion, yeah, the, the, um, like gerrymandering, like what the Republicans do right now. Actually. Oh, good God. Yeah. It drives me fucking crazy. You, you know, um, the, the, the thing about all the laws that were on the books now, almost all of them have fallen away. Um, um, I mean, any form of gambling, no lottery tickets. Right. You, well, you sent me that, you tobacco. sent me that, that picture of, of yeah. the sign and most, most, you know, cities had a welcome to this city. Not us. We had this sign of all the things you can't do. And l- let me read some of the things uh, in Zion, which is to be a city of God. There will be no, and get ready. Cause there's a lot here. No profanity, no vulgarity, no intoxicating liquors, no tobacco, no drugs, no theaters, arr, no dance halls, no sorcerers. All right, here's where it gets fun. No medical prisoners, no surgical. What is that? No surgical butchers. Here, here's something that that we're dealing with. In no surgical current, butchers. No, what does that even mean? I, dude. But here's something that we're dealing with now is no vaccination. The foulest of all the foul inventions of the devil and then some. Oh. What year was Zion Incorporated or whatever? I want to say it was around the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century, uh, late 1800s, somewhere in that vicinity. And that sounds right. um, the, the guy that founded it was, was um, a, a, a typical cultist. I mean, he, was, he thought he was- this, Dowie, uh, right? Yeah, Alexander Dowie. And he was, he, he basically got, kind of got thrown out of Chicago for doing these, um, uh, he thought he was a second coming. He thought he was Elijah. Uh, and um, he, had a, he had a debate with a local uh, Muslim, uh, uh, I guess, would that be priest? I'm not sure what, what, the, what they call the head of their- Cleric or something? Yes, yes. So, um, and, and Dowie was- you know, he he believed that his way was right, and the the, the Muslim uh, uh, aspect of it was that they were right, and so they had a, a wager. Eventually, had this wager that said, "Okay, whoever dies first, <laughs> their religion is wrong." <laughs> wow. And of course, Dowie had a stroke on the altar, you know, at, at the altar of his church, and um, and was. Uh, you know, he was he he died shortly after that, but he was in he was being sued by the church because he was embezzling money. All the things that these guys do, I right? Mean, it, was just, it was just terrible, right? Terrible. I mean, for a while, Zion had more churches per capita than any other city in the U.S. Yeah, that's right. And that's where local H and shoes came from. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> and you know, the, the the wonderful thing about that is the fact that. Despite that, um, we achieved a, a, a certain level of success, and you guys achieved an even greater level of success coming from a town that you couldn't even play uh, at, at a bar. I mean, in, in a hometown. I mean, to me, it was there was a critic that once said to us um, that that you guys willed yourself into existence. Because we want, we didn't know any better. We, right. we didn't realize what the odds were that a, a band could get signed to a, a label and come out of this little podunk town. But it happened, and then and then you guys did. And we had a number of of bands that signed to major labels. Material Issue, of course. Yeah. And um, uh, the Lupins. I don't know if you remember the Lupins. I do remember the Lupins. Yep. Um, uh, Lance, uh, who 
was in the Lupins, was the original bass player in Material Issue. And um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, he ended up, they had a radio show, I think. Yeah, he was on Q101. Yeah, right. Yeah. For a while. Don't, don't forget Gary Coleman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I never had him in the studio. I have to no, you didn't. <laughs> say, so. I, I, I went to grade school with Gary Coleman. And, and this, sto- this story has come up a couple times this week, uh, it, private, privately, not, not on this, but because 4th of July, I think in 76 was the first time I ever went to Chicago. And m- my mom took me there because I was, uh, I was auditioning to be the, the Harris Banker kid. Uh, which Gary Coleman got. Wow. So I, it was, Gary Coleman beat me out and, you know, I, I could have been in different strokes, Gabe. <laughs> you know, the thing is that did you a favor, you know, instead did me a favor, you, got, yeah. you yeah. got to be a rock star instead of, <laughs> right. instead of being the Harris Bank kid. Right. Well, you know, Gilbert Gottfried tells a story all the time about being beat out for a role by Billy Barty. And this is like, Almost the same fucking thing. It's amazing. Yeah. You yeah, and Gilbert the same thing. by a couple of short people. Well, here's the different thing about, uh, and, and I appreciate what you're saying, Jeff, but the, the thing about it is we did know that a band out of Zion could do something because there was you guys. And, you know, I was, you, you were, you know, we knew that Choose had been out of Zion and done something. And I, and I remember seeing your face everywhere. You were on like the cover of Happenings and, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Like you were there and, and, you know, we'd see your videos. And, and, and so, I mean, it was like, because of you, maybe that thing was in our heads that we could actually do this. You know, you had the studio and. That's great. And, and, you know, the, the thing is that when you see uh, someone do it, you, you, you are able to say, okay, okay so it's possible. It, yeah. you know, it, it was so unlikely that, that, and we were inspired by the fact that, things were happening in Chicago. When we first saw Cheap Trick in the clubs, I had just turned 21 and I went to Night Gallery. I don't know if you guys remember Night Gallery. Mm-mm. Oh, it was the best club. In, I mean, between Milwaukee and, and Indiana, it was probably the best club. And it was it was in Park City. Mm-hmm. And they were open till six in the morning. Ooh. So the bands would play at other places, you know, like uh, Haymakers in Palatine or, or the Zodiac up in Kenosha. And then when those places would close, everybody would go down to Park City and would see these bands because the headliner wouldn't start till midnight. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time I saw Cheap Trick, I, I, it literally, my jaw hit the table because they were in a league of their own. Even then, you could see that they were going to succeed. Right. And it was that was inspirational to us. That was our thing was like, oh, crap, look at these guys. We 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 weren't the same type of uh band i mean because nielsen would be nuts on stage which was great fun to watch but right. we're we're way more introverted than that i mean we're more studio guys yeah you, you went about it completely differently like yeah. when you talk about willing your band into existence that's really almost what happened like like you you weren't even really in the band at first right it was gary and john yeah, it was Gary and John. They had gone to school together and they had this magazine. I mean, you went to school in Zion and it can be a little oppressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a newspaper in school at the time called the General Consensus. That was the, <laughs> that was the official high school oh, newspaper. So John drips and Gary, Pulitzer, doesn't it? <laughs> John and Gary started this alternative rag called 
Time, uh, Lime magazine, which was, of course, a play on Time. And they would do things that were kind of eh, walking the edge of getting in trouble. They would make fun of teachers and stuff like that. And John, who was a really talented cartoonist, would draw these caricatures of the teachers and make fun of them. Uh-huh. And then pick out, you know, things and, you know, like, eh, they would do, you know, kind of sophomoric things. But it was, you know, it wasn't as prim and proper as uh, the general consensus. And they bonded as friends and they talked music and they realized they had common musical tastes. So they had this fantasy that wouldn't it be cool to have a band? And, you know, so they John started drawing cartoons of them. You know, there's a, a Gary's got it uh, framed. I think it's in his living room. And it's it's uh, John had drawn a, a fake Rolling Stone cover, and it had a, a caricature of Gary and John on stage, and all you see are these fans' arms reaching yeah. up to them, and John's got a full beard, you know, yeah. in this cartoon, and <laughs> it was shoes because it was two guys. He thought it was a cool name. They thought oh, it was very right. very symmetrical because it had an O in the middle and S's on the end. It looked good in print, so that's where the name the name and John wanted something. Uh, uh, unassuming so what year is this okay so what year is is uh john and gary like we're gonna form a band and, and this is just an idea in their head they yeah. hadn't written song one yet no right? no um you know they were out of high school i mean they talked about they met in high school and they were friends but they had both gone to the university of illinois down at champagne uh-huh. um and john couldn't afford it at first because he was self putting himself through school. So he went to uh, uh, College of Lake County to get some local credits and they would send letters back and forth and and make up all these bizarre stories of this band, you know, like, you know, playing at the Carnegie yeah. Hall or, you know, the Fillmore or wherever, you know, and right. John would draw these cartoons about it and Gary would do. So uh, that would have been probably 73-ish, 72, 73. Okay. Um, in the meantime, I, um, I had gotten a guitar from a friend of mine who, um, had his locker next to me and it was one of those $30 Tisco Del Rey, uh, mm-hmm. uh you, you know, electrics, but I w- had real, t- I had tape recorders since I was a little kid. I just loved the mechanics and the, 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 the fact that you could record something and play it back later. I had one of those little three inch reel, like you see on the old mission impossible, you know, where the tape burns up. I had one of those tape recorders and would record TV shows and stuff. So uh, I got into the stereo stuff. And in 1973, T- the TIAC Corporation um, released the 3340 tape machine, which was the first commercially available tape machine where you could record something on of the four channels. You re- could record something here and listen to it in sync mode and play along with it and record something here, it would be in time. Mm-hmm. If you try doing that with a normal stereo tape machine, it won't work because of the mechanics, the, the physicality of the playback head and the record head there in different places. So anyhow, that was the first machine you could do that. So I um, I bought it, I had it flown in from Washington because um, at that time they had what they called fair trade laws in America. And a fair trade law was a company could basically establish a minimum price and nobody could sell it for less than that. Okay. But the district of Columbia was not a state. So there was an audio company there that sold it for like 500 bucks less. Mm-hmm. So I bought it from them and had it flown in and started screwing around making these recordings on my own. So when John and Gary wanted to start doing stuff in like the late 
late 73, early 74, hey, I got this tape machine. So we all kind of started banging on anything we could find to make noise and music. And and, uh, one of the first things those guys did, which was just a, (laughs) it was a mess, but it was that uh, Gary was trying to play a saxophone. I don't remember where he got it, but uh, every time he tried to play a note, he'd start laughing and the genre would start laughing. And that was kind of the way it was, was. We were just doing anything we could to make noise, to make music. Right. And um, it wasn't until 1974 that we recorded our first batch of things together as a band. Um, and that was called Heads or Tails. Okay. And, um, and from there, I mean, we did our first gig in 76 at the Brat Stop on a Wednesday wow. night. You know, uh, and, you know, they pay you a hundred bucks on a Wednesday night and that whole thing, you know, you've been through that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, shit, three years later, we're, we're standing in the manor in England. I mean, it was, it was really a, a logical progression to us of what we thought. Um, I mean, like Cheap Trick, for instance, their approach was, I don't want to say typical, because right. they were so good at it. But it was typical to play live. Yeah, you go out, you play live, right. you get a reputation, you get a following, and then a record company finds you. Our logic was kind of looking at my record collection, how many of those bands did I buy because I saw them live uh, as opposed to how many I bought because I heard it on the radio? Right. And we thought, I mean, you, shit. You, know? you guys are like the guided by voices of your time. Yeah, you're putting kind of, out like all these records on four track and listen i've recorded on i've started recording on four tracks not started but i've recorded on four tracks before and they didn't sound anywhere near as good as the records that you made on four track well you know thank you we we uh, you know we experimented a lot um the first but but amazingly i mean i've listened to some of the earliest things that we did um there was a, a box set that was released in england last april called um Oh, let me think. No, I'm, I'm going, I'm sorry. Not, not the last one, the one before that. We released in 2018, there was a box set called um, Black Vinyl Shoes Anthology. Right. Well, and was one, one the, in Versailles on there? When did that come out? Uh, that came out in seven. That was John and I doing it because Gary was in France at the time. Okay. Um, shortly after we recorded the Heads or Tails uh, stuff, which was the summer of 74, um, Gary was leaving to go he was studying architecture. So he went to France. The U of I had an extension in France to study architecture, Mm -hmm. um, which we were just kind of getting into the band thing. So John and I decided to do this and surprise Gary. And um, so I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but (laughs) I, I knew somebody that printed a local newspaper. So what we did was he and I snuck in one night after hours and turned on the press and I had printed, I had made up an entire fake newspaper because we knew Gary got a copy of the Zion Benton news in the mail every week. Mm-hmm. So we printed a section, a fake section of the Zion Benton news, but it was all about shoes. Yeah. It was all this bullshit about this big concert we were doing. And I wrote these fake fan letters from these girls and we had pictures and we printed, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of copies of these, and you know all this paper and ink that we used from this printing firm, and we ins- we found Gary's copy of the newspaper, and we inserted that, knowing <laughs> that they would mail it. To him. So Gary, on Gary's side of it, to get Gary's point of view was, 
Wow, you guys went through a lot of trouble to fuck with each other. Back we then, did, we did. Yeah, that was because that was the whole game. Yeah. The band was really a figment of our imagination. For we're going to make a record for Gary. We're going to like, we're going to uh, hijack the paper for Gary. <laughs> Do all, all this stuff. Yeah, and and, uh, and Gary said he was. <laughs> he put there was a mail strike going on at the time in France, so mail was really inconsistent. So he says, I went to the mailbox, got my mail, threw the paper under my arm, hopped on the 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 bus and he's standing there and he says, so I flip it open and here's this ad for shoes playing by the Zion Park District, this show on July 4th. And he said he freaked out because he's like, too soon, man, it's too soon. We're not ready. We're not, oh, right, right. We're not ready. So he writes this, this letter kind of scolding us to, you know, you guys are moving too fast. So we I love that he's over in France and he still wants that local paper delivered every week. Yeah, he was yeah. still that into Zion boys. Keep yeah. touch. You never know. You never, you never know what can happen. They might allow alcohol. Uh, right. <laughs> and so then, uh, John and I on Easter break of '75, John came home from U of I, and we recorded his bits. I had been working on mine uh, for what the album that became One of Versailles. And we were trying to press up actual copies. The drummer that we had at the time had been in an eighth grade marching band at uh, Central mm -hmm. and he had a, a copy of the album from the from the school and I said how in the hell did you do this I, I mean I thought you had to be signed to Warner Brothers or CBS to have right and and I read the back of it and there was a press a record pressing plant there was two of them in Chicago and it mm -hmm. dawned on me all you got to do is give these guys money and they'll press press up records so John and I took that tape and we pressed it up we've made 300 copies of Warner Versailles and we were hoping to get it done so we could send it to Gary, but it, the lead time was too too far away. I mean, and that was great that we did that because it, we learned so much. I mean, dude, that uh, record's really good. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it these days, but to me, it sounds like a lost early '70s Beach Boys record. I mean, really? it's it's almost like Surfs Up. I mean, wow. it is really good and like the songs are like really touching and you know what's the second song on that record i'm just like oh my god this is a great song oh thanks you know one of the most downloaded songs that we see from our website because you know people buy stuff at uh, you know our website um is is one of the songs off of that album called do i get so shy yeah and it and it still amazes us that those songs you know 45 years later are still making money um, that's the band that you could have that's what blows me away is like you could have done that like that's a that, that's like a it's like a choose your own adventure that you that could have been the page you turned to and then you know years later that's what you would have been you know yeah it, it it's so much of, of what we had envisioned or fantasized about it came true um uh, the the point i was making about the the box set in england was uh, the one called, uh, I think it's called Black Vinyl Shoes Anthology. Mm -hmm. And it ha I think it has uh, One of Versailles on there. But we also included some of the tracks from that very first thing we did as a band, the Heads or Tails. There's two songs on there. And when I heard those tapes, they sounded surprisingly good to me. Yep. Um, John, John's not really a guitar player. So when he writes a song, he does things differently. And mm -hmm. that's part of what makes it so interesting to me. Uh, there's a song on uh, present tense called um, uh, Somebody Has What I Had, mm -hmm. uh, present tense. And we used to joke that it has more chords than any song ever written. 
because right. John, John would change chords on almost every word he would play. <laughs> you know, he would sing. It would be somebody has what I had. Somebody has what I yeah. do. It's like, geez. He just you don't know you're not supposed to do that. He, yeah, he, he just would think in these totally different terms. And we still don't. Um, I, a friend of ours in um, California sent me a, a song um, last week and asked if I would play acoustic guitar on it. And I was explaining it to John. Um, and I said, there, he's using the same chords that you did in one of the songs off this album. And we don't know what the name of the chord. We still don't know what the names of the chords are. So I said, mm -hmm. you know that chord where you put your finger like this? That, he, he plays that chord. <laughs> have this ignorance 
which in some ways is a blessing right um, because you don't know what you can't do and so you just do what comes into your head right i mean even you know they they could be lying about this but even when people talk to paul mccartney it's like how'd you do that he's like i don't know we just did it you know i mean you just put your head down i mean when you guys you guys had a unique approach as well because of the fact that the 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 the, the you guys made so much noise I mean, my guy, for two guys, you made a lot of noise, mm. but it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful big noise. <laughs> That's the way I described it to somebody once. I said, it's this wonderful big noise. The the drums were louder than I'd ever heard anybody hit a drum before. Your guitar was like this massive thing. And then you did the, the bit without a bass guitarist. That was really unique. And I was, I was amazed at how now now gabe see that's where you came in you came in and did some things in the earliest days D did you play bass on anything no i actually never never played bass and never played an instrument with the guys i just i just came up and did some he, junk on, on live you know he played tambourine i was gonna say i thought he did some percussion in this he yeah, played tambourine was, yeah yeah i was yeah. i was the, the clown with the with the uh toys on stage <laughs> i love the i love the uh um, the gigantic in Gabe we trust. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's also yeah. He's our mascot. He's our Eddie. <laughs> I guess. And and you know the thing is, you guys had a different angle. Record companies love that when there's something different about a, a band that they can say, oh look, look, they don't have a bass player. Oh look, it's only two guys. Or right, they like it, it until they don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it beca yeah. because it makes their job easier. When we were with Electra. We were there in the best of times and the worst of times, right? Because they were fat with cash in the '70s. Because of the, the label we were on had didn't have a lot of bands signed to Electra, but they were very successful bands. The Cars, with, like who? Okay, the Cars, uh, Eagles, um, right? Uh, they had uh, Queen. They had um, um, Electra and Asylum are the same label, but they had merged. So, so anything that was on Electra was the same as Asylum. They asked us what label we wanted to be on. And we thought Electra was hipper than Asylum. Asylum was more Southern California, so right. a Jackson Brown, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, they'd heard black vinyl shoes. Yes. And they were like, we can do something with this. Yeah, the the, the guy that signed us was, which blows my mind. And that was recorded on four track two as well. That was right? recorded on a four track. I'm sorry to keep harping on it, but it's just, it, it, the four track stuff sounds so Goddamn good. I don't know how you did it. I, oh, thanks. I, I'll let it go now. Well, you know, the thing is, we had developed a a technique by then, because by the time we did Black Final Shoes, it really was our fourth album of recording, you know, on that right. machine. So we learned a sequence of events. If we charted things out, how many instruments we could fit on four channels by uh, ping pong, what we call ping ponging or bouncing. Mm -hmm. um, the Beatles, you know, if you read any of the Beatle recording books, which I pour over that stuff, they, they call them reductions. What the Beatles would do is they would get a four track machine. They would fill all four channels with different instruments. They would bring in a second four track machine and then mix those four channels down onto one channel of the other machine. Now you now were they doing had, that though, were you? We were only you had that? one machine. So, we okay. <laughs> but what we could do is you could take and you could, after you recorded uh, three of the channels, you could mix them together onto that fourth channel mm -hmm. within the machine itself. 
Right. There were certain limitations. You couldn't go to an adjacent channel. You couldn't go from one to two or from three to four right. um, without some issues. So we developed develop this, this schematic of how to record thing at a certain time. Okay, this is going to be what end up on the left channel. It was a really tedious thing, but but we got pretty good at guessing because you know you're 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 recording things in pieces. So there's no bass yet and there's no lead mm. guitar yet. So how loud do you make the tambourine? How mm. loud do you make the background vocals? You had to guess all that because they didn't exist yet. Right. And um, we got pretty good at guessing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the place where we recorded all this was this little shack on the alley. Um, remember Kern Heating in Zion? Do you remember that? No? Okay, you know where McDonald's is on Sheridan Road, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, directly east from there the first alley from there um uh there's a little garage that someone had converted into a a rental and Mm. that's where i lived and that's where we recorded those albums was in oh so Um, you lived there yeah so that was your your living room that was my living room okay and the recording gear was in the kitchen for some strange reason there was a a pass-through window I mean, mm-hmm. it, literally, this thing was the size of a one-car garage, so it was a very <laughs> small apartment. But there was a pass-through window that went from the kitchen into the living room. So, so I put my, my kitchen table up against the window, put the tape machine there with a mixer, and then we ran the cables through the pass-through and into the living room where the drums were. And sometimes we'd have somebody in the bedroom or maybe as far as the bathroom, so we wouldn't get any leakage. Yeah. Our, our ISO booth was the bathroom. You know, it worked. Yeah, and 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 again, we got we got pretty good at guessing uh, how to pre-mix these things together and have it turn out pretty decent. Um, John's songs on on Black Vinyl Shoes tend to sound better because we learned as we every song we we did we learned something new. Uh, uh, you know, uh, oh, we shouldn't do that. Or one thing we learned was you cannot ping pong bass guitar it gets really mushy and crappy and it doesn't have any distinction to it so you can't Uh. do that so bass guitar was always on its own track and well it wasn't always on its own track because then we figured out you don't have a whole lot of mixing to do when everything is all done because you pre-mixed all these instruments together on all these channels Mm -hmm. so what we would do is we would mix uh frequency opposite things i would put gabe's tambourine on the same channel as the bass guitar. So if I was wrong about my relationship, I could EQ the tambourine with some hot, with some treble and mm. the tambourine would sound louder, wouldn't really affect the bass. Right. Even though they were on the same track. Right. You know, that was a way to give us a little bit more control at the end. Is that um, something you learned from the Beatles or is that just trial and error? That stuff? was trial and error. Okay. That was the trial and and, and vocal, main vocal was always on its own um, so that you could, um, we only had one effect unit. So we would record mm-hmm. every instrument with some kind of effect so that it sounded like we had 20 effects units, right. you, know, you know? So we put a little slap echo on the guitar and, and, a, and a little, a little uh, delay on, on uh, the, uh, the, the backing vocals and then a slap echo on the main vocal, but it was all done with one roll and uh, space echo one, two Oh one, two Oh one space. echo. So, uh, you know, and in a lot of ways, the wonderful thing about that was you were done when you were done. Right. You know, you ran out of tracks, you ran out of room. Sorry, nothing right. else we can do. That's it. It's it's done. And it forced us to become very productive in a very short period of time. From and make decisions. Yes, exactly. From 73 
until 77, we did four albums, which for a band that had never, I mean, we were working full-time jobs. So literally we were coming home and working until midnight, working on weekends. It was terrible yeah. for our relationships because our girlfriends, you know, <laughs> pissed. Right. And, um, but we were, you know, and we didn't really get out of the studio until, I mean, we didn't really, t I should say, we didn't really take a break until 83, I guess, when we decided to build our first studio, commercial studio. Yeah. Was when we actually breathed a sigh, it wasn't even a sigh of relief because we lost our label in 82. Yeah. So it, that's a different pressure. You know? So those records, you do consider those records, those records like you don't think of present tense as your first record you no. think of that as your fifth record no that's like the second phase of our career but yeah that's we look at that as our fifth right um, so when people say oh i love your first album they're talking about the first one that they heard um but um actually i have one here because i just got it back from amazon because amazon loves to order things from us and then uh -huh. return them but this this um let me see that this is the double exposure let me nice yes yeah okay double exposure see which which With the demos right those are the demos that yeah. we did for those albums that we did because uh, we demoed everything before we went into electra when they when the guy that signed us came in to, to talk to us flew in design the first time um he was looking to sign a band he'd never signed a band he was the vice president in charge of promotion mm -hmm. and he wanted to get into a and r okay so so he flew to new york because he was originally from Detroit. He he moved to California because he became vice president in charge of promotion and he broke the cars. When that record broke, he became the whiz kid. He was, like I say, 29 years old. Right. So he wanted to sign bands. He flew to New York and said, what's happening on the street? What, what's the word? You know, what's a band? Right. Well, coincidentally, Black Vinyl Shoes had been reissued by a label called PVC that we had licensed it to. Yeah. And that had come out in 78 and was just getting pressed by like Robert Criscow with the right. voice and New York rocker and, you know, um, Boston globe. A lot of these East coast publications were discovering it. And so they said, well, there's this band called shoes from the Midwest. It's got this album out and unbeknownst to us that weekend when he was in New York, there was a spe a Beatles special that ran on TV. And um, during it, they played an obscure clip that we had never seen. And they're asking the Beatles, where did you get your name? Yeah. And and John says, it's just a name. It doesn't mean anything. We could have been shoes. We could have been the shoes. And Paul goes, yes, we could have been shoes. Well, you know. And this guy sees <laughs> It's that. a sign. And exactly. And he it blows his mind. And, right. and so he calls us. And he, <laughs> he called my house and he wanted me to fly to New York. And I said, look. I mean, I was scared. I said, we're democratic. So, you know, you fly us all in, or, you know, or none of us, because I, I you know, I don't want to speak right. to the other guys. And besides, I was the kid brother. I mean, I was, yeah. the, you know, and so. Um, it would cause problems too, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so he flew in with one of the promotion guys from New York. And it was that really horrific winter that we had in 79 where literally blizzard of 79 yes <laughs> snow was stacked up at intersections yeah so you couldn't see around the corner it was like driving in tunnels and he's like where in the hell am i zeonia and, and he had literally a test tube of cocaine carried, carried around with him a test and he just bring this thing out so we go to dinner at ray radigan it was a glorious time it was wonderful 
and he he tips the waitress 50 bucks and he's like hey she's creaming her jeans she's not this guy's 29 years old 20 right and um so we take him back to our rehearsal space and we played live for him we played him the demos that we had already done for the album for for present Mm -hmm. tense and he said uh bring your lawyer meet me in la there'll be tickets at the airport and i'd never (laughs) been on a plane before you know (laughs) and my life changed and it never never looked back it sounds like a very familiar story Sure does. I'd, I'd never been. I'd never been on a plane before. You know, all, right. all that stuff. And you know, it's weird. You you bring up Chris Cow. Chris Cow was the first critic to actually take us seriously as well. I mean, it's really and probably the reason he did because he knew we were from. He knew. I mean, I think he mentioned shoes in like those first right. reviews that he did. Right, Gabe. Uh, you got a better memory than me, but uh, there, there, there were you, mentions. It was because of you, Jeff, that he actually uh, gave a shit about us. You know, the thing about it, and, and I don't know what you've experienced in the Midwest, but um, one thing that we always believed was that success breeds success. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at look at Seattle. Look at right. Liverpool. Look at, you know, I mean, when you have record company attention, they all kind of go like, you know, like guppies to the food. So we thought anybody that's successful in the area, it helps attract other success, other bands. So, but we we experienced just the opposite. A lot of the Chicago bands were very bitter at us because we didn't pay our dues Mm -hmm. by playing in the clubs and beating it up. It's like, there are no rules in music. It it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I was on a panel once with them Dennis DeYoung, uh, you know, sticks lead singer. Yeah, yeah. And, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his lawyer was on the panel too. And um, and and I, I, you know, my turn to speak. And I said, look, there's no rules in music. You make it up as you go. You do what you want to do. Stick to your guns and do what's right. And uh, you know, Dennis, uh, Dennis kind of says, well, you know, we played live, and people eventually noticed us. And, and his lawyer chimes in, oh, it's just, they did this wonderful, just, you know, good, you know, get your tongue out of them. It, mm. it, you know, it was just, it was this stroke of, I said, look, it doesn't matter. May, they, if it works for them, that's fine. Right. It obviously worked for Cheap Trick. But look at the way you guys came up, which is different than anybody else. And, and the way that we came up, I mean, that's the beauty of the music industry is, is that, uh, you, you can do it in any number of ways. I mean, good God, I, I love the fact that Billy Eilish won six Grammys for recording in her bedroom. I know this, you know, that's, yeah. It's like, hell, we were born there. Yeah. I, I think that's the coolest thing. The, the problem when we did it, they didn't have the technology where it sounded that good. Oh, uh, you know, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. You know, well, it, it's a different, it's a different thing. And I'll t- be honest with you. I miss that. I miss analog. I miss tape. I miss meters. I miss yeah. knobs to push and pull. Uh, it was it was fun. It was much more tan- tactile. You know, it was right. Uh, well, do you think you could make a record uh, on a four track today? Oh or yeah, you, you sure. could. Sure. Well, why don't you? Uh, you know, I have one right here. As a matter of fact, um, I was, interesting. A friend of mine has a. Um, uh, our drummer has a studio up in Menominee called Drum Farm. Uh-huh. And Is that where you recorded the, the last record? No, we did that in, in part of it was done here. I did on my I did bits on my machine, and then I would go over to Gary's house, and we would fly him in. Gary's got a studio built into his basement, and we would fly him into 
Pro Tools and uh, or whatever. No, he's using Cubase, I guess. And and that's how we did that album was was you know the same the ignition same we ignition right yes yeah, yeah that record sounds great you've already kind of in a way gone back to full circle the home recording to everything you're not doing it on four track but you you are doing it in your your living rooms again yes and I mean that record sounds better than Stolen Wishes does oh, you know thanks. what I mean like that yes I mean I don't mean I don't mean anything against Stolen Wishes it's just that maybe it's the way that they're mastered, but I was like, this record sounds amazing. And I know that you guys didn't do it in a, in a big studio and stuff like right. that. Right. Well, part, part of it is, um, aside from the three Electra albums, when, when we had budgets with Electra, we had big budgets. I yeah. mean, now, now, I mean, the budgets are, are ridiculously small again, mm -hmm. but literally we never had a budget that was less than $150,000. Yeah. So, so by the time we were doing the third album, we had 200 grand to play with in the studio. Um, but that has to incorporate a lot of things. I mean, for right. instance, your lodging, your travel, the equipment. I mean, we spent 10 grand just getting the equipment over to England um, when we did present tense, just in, just in cartage cost. Um, so there was a lot of expense in that kind of stuff. But um, when we split with Electra and we started going back to, like you, you referenced Stolen Wishes, the reason that album sounds peculiar is number one, we had the, the, the last album we did with Electra, we used two 24 track machines that were synchronized together. So we had 48 tracks or 46, because you lose one from each machine for time code. Right. We had 46 tracks to mess around with. When we did the first album after that, which was Silhouette, we had just bought a 16 channel tape machine and that's what we were recording at when we did stolen wishes and we went to number one it was only one inch tape instead of two inch so the band it doesn't have quite the dynamics that a two inch tape machine does All right but more importantly we were recording drums on a dozen channels you know one for the snare one for the kick one for this time one for that time overheads room mics etc well now you got 16 tracks how are you going to do that but the new technology was, and you know, we were way into learning different ways to do things. If we could stripe a time code on one channel of 16 track, we could lock it up to our computer and use MIDI pulses to trigger drums. Mm. And we had Rick make, you, you know, Rick, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So we had Rick come in to play drums on the Stolen Wishes album, but he, we had real cymbals, but instead of drums, we had him play on electronic pads oh so it didn't eat up any tracks on the 16 track tape machine it was stored as a midi pulses in the computer and we triggered samples unfortunately that technology was so young the, right. sam the samples were really shitty i mean if you use uh, bfd drums or something program like that now i mean they'll, they'll have 28 different samples of one snare drum yeah we didn't you know it was yeah. a snare drum it was either loud or it was quiet it was the same sound it didn't sound, you know, it, so the yeah. drums sound electronic, but it was out of necessity because we had no other way to record those drums and fit them on and still get the music that we wanted. Right. So, so, and then when we did Propeller, that was, we went back to 24 track, but that suffered from a, a pretty crappy mastering job. Uh, but there were still some pretty decent songs on oh, it. Yeah. We, we got back to organics on that. Just, it felt great to get back to that uh having a real drummer in a room again 
Uh, right. So each each album, there's a reason why it sounds the way it does. People may not be aware of that, but but we were going through it because of necessity. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, shit no. on stolen wishes. No, no, no. <laughs> but but it's funny that that um, uh, that's that that's the album. Ironically, when we, we were talking to Gene Simmons, you know, the, the whole Kiss thing. Yeah. And I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Well, in we had a we had a we had a, a clause in our contract with Electra that they had never done before. And it was so secret, they didn't want it in the original contract. It had to be a side letter. And in the side letter, it said that if our music went out of print by Electra, the licensing rights reverted back to us hmm. after five years. So our deal with Electra ended in 82. And in 87, when the rights were available again, CDs came on the scene and Electra had never released our stuff on CD. So I wrote them a letter and said, pursuant to this paragraph on page number 58, 90, whatever, please send us back our master tapes. And they did. Nice. And we started releasing our music on CD, um, re-releasing those albums and everything after that. Um, and then... <laughs> And we had them for 30 years. And uh, Christmas of 2017, I, I get a call from Warner's legal department saying, cease and desist the illegal exploitation of our, of our product. <laughs> oh, so somebody finally paid attention. <laughs> After 30 years. And yeah. I said, well, it's not illegal exploitation because if you check the side letter, when you got to remember now the people that signed us who were, you know, they're long gone. Long gone. They, they don't work yep. for So these kids that were in there, they had no idea that we had this, the rights to do this. So, I mean, they, they still had the right to request it back. So they, they got a, the streaming rights for those albums back in 2017. Is that but, why they're not on uh, Apple? Yes, they, yeah. they had been up to that point, but they forced us to pull them from all the streaming platforms so they could put them in under their name, which of course they never really did. Of course not. They don't give a shit. They just don't want you to do it. Exactly. Makes me sick. Exactly. Makes me sick. When, when the when the box set, when the last box set called Electrified, that was released in uh, the UK um, in last April, that was the first time, to my knowledge, that Electra actually did something with those tapes. And the mm. only reason they did was because. Um, <laughs> and ironically, the label in England said to me, they said, you guys have them. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> it didn't even know, <laughs> you know, it, but, but we were lucky. Uh, we always owned a hundred percent of our publishing. We own all of our master tapes. We own everything. So, so we didn't have to give any of that away. Uh, so what I, happened I with Gene I, Simmons? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Gene Simmons. So, so we released the first thing that we did when we got the tapes back in 87 from Electra. We put together, a, I call it a best of collection called Shoes Best, because we thought that'll be our way to put our toe in the water and see how CDs sell. And man, we banged out 20,000 CDs without even breathing hard. I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I, I just got on the phone and started calling distributors. You know, I knew Pete Jesperson from Twin Tone and I said, hey, Pete, and he gave me some names and it, you know, it spread out from there. So we had distribution all over. And um, everybody was converting from vinyl to CD. So they were completely rebuying their music collection. So right. we were selling CDs like that. So then we released, you know, Present Tense and Tongue Twister and started releasing all these albums. 
Gene Simmons, oh, and Billboard magazine reviewed Shoes Best. Uh, Chris Morris, it was one of the, the recommended pick releases of the week from Zion, Illinois. <laughs> I love it. And, and uh, um, so Gene saw that and he wanted to start this label and uh, called us up and we had numerous phone calls stretched out over months and months and eventually culminated in us flying to New York and meeting with him, which was just this God awful nightmare of a meeting where it was, it was literally like, I thought I was still asleep at the hotel. It was that bad mm. where, you know, he, he, he would, he was on the road. He would call us from his hotel after a show and say, here's what I want. You guys remain autonomous. You, you work in your room. You just give me, you just give me the tapes and I'll, I'll put them through. He had a deal with BMG. I'll put them through BMG and I can only sign four bands through this deal. So everyone's got to sell at least 2 million copies and blah, blah, blah. So we fly to New York. Is that all? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's like you got to hit a home run the first time you step to the plate and every time you step to the plate. Mm -hmm. So we fly to New York on, on his dime. You know, he put us up in a hotel and he sent, you know, we, we go to his office the next day and he walks out and he says, uh, I should have canceled meeting. I'm sorry. <laughs> I played the tapes for my partner and he doesn't get it. Uh-huh. It's like you waited this long to do that. And his partner was this 65-year-old bald New York advertising executive. Literally, they were telling stories about doing a Hertz commercial when Kiss in his early days. And and we're, we're, we're sitting there and, and it got into this argument over what's a hit song. Give me this. Give me that. Right. We were like, see you later. Right. So Stolen Formulas. Wishes. Yes, for Stone Wishes was the album that we were working on. And when we finished it, um, he heard about it and called up. Because we had kind of lost contact with him because he kept making these demands. He, he'd call up and say, Gary had written a song called I Want You Bad. Mm -hmm. And the, the lyric was, uh, anything you desire, anything you require, I want you bad. And she says, you can't use that, that word in a rock song. We're like, what word? He says, yeah. that's a college word. That's a 50 cent word. We're like, what <laughs> word? He says, he said, require. <laughs> you don't put the word require in a rock song. So, okay. It's in deliverance. So, yeah. So, so we eventually just kind of fell away. And when the album came out then, um, he called up his, and wanted a copy to review. Because you got that four-star review in Rolling Stone. Exactly. He didn't know about that yet. Uh -huh. we did yeah and and he called up and he called up one day and i was at the studio and he said hi jeff it's gene just want to tell you i got the album and uh i don't get it <laughs> i don't get it you're not going to get 15 year old girls excited about this and i said that's not our target audience that's not what we're going after i said you know college radio that kind of stuff that was and he goes oh you're going for the geeks you're going for the yeah. intellectuals and the, you know the guys with the glasses yeah Okay. Talk to you later, Gene. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. You know what? I don't get you. Click. Yeah. And that was the last conversation we had. Oh, I did tell him. I said, "There's the, the April edition of Rolling Stone has a four-star review of that album. So yeah, there you go.
you guys signed to Electra, and you were working with big producers, and you're not the producer anymore. Did that drive you nuts? Well, no. And you were also psyched to be in a big studio, too, right? Yeah. There were several things that we learned from that. One was, number one, we had had refusal, so all the producers had to be approved by us. Okay. The songs had to be approved by us. Uh, So we had that control over that. Um, anything that we didn't spend in the studio, we got to keep. Mm-hmm. If we had a budget of 150 grand and we spent 125, we got the, the balance. Right. When we worked on the first album with Mike Stone, and we were we interviewed all kinds of producers um, that were flying in, phone calling. I mean, from Barry Mraz to Keith Olsen to Chris Kimsey to, yeah. to Kim Fowley. Uh, wow. I mean, uh, Andrew Gold. Um, um, Steve Goodman, mm-hmm. they, they were all throwing their hats in the ring and we were looking for that right fit. Mike Stone, who was English, we liked him for the first album. He had a great sense of humor. Um, and he told us about the studio called The Manor that he had worked at. And he really, he says, oh, you guys will love it, which we did. Yeah. So it was, it was very collaborative. Uh, we did kind of butt heads during the mixing uh, because he was like, there's one way to mix drums and this is it. And we're like, no, there's no one way to do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but but it still we, it turned out pretty well. Um, he he was just he was kind of old school in that sense. But as we were, you talk about getting into these bigger studios, people would say to us, "You guys work like the English do." We said, "What do you mean by that?" Because well, you're not really concerned with what the meters are telling you. You just twist on knobs until it sounds the way you want in your head. All right. We said that's true. So it really was just that we had more gear at our disposal, but right. we, we knew how to use everything already. Um, and um, the, you know that album was successful enough that when we did the second album, we were looking for a producer because we didn't really want to work with Mike again. Right. And um, we went to the whiskey, and there was this band called Great Buildings that was on EMI. They were so you go to the was it, were you spending time in LA at that point? Well, or? we were looking for producers and, and we got frustrated because in Zion there's not a lot of producers hanging. Right. So yeah. it was it was inconvenient to be here. So we yeah. decided let's force it. Let's force the issue. So we went out to LA and we went to see this band Great Buildings, which coincidentally, uh, at least one of those guys turned out to be in the Rembrandts. Um, and we were, we were backstage at the go-go or at the whiskey, you know, which is kind of upstairs there. And I saw Richard Dash sitting by himself and I, I knew who that was. I knew he had, I'd seen him in magazines. He produced rumors for Fleetwood Mac. Right. He was the sixth member of Fleetwood Mac. I mean, yes. Yeah. You got him in the middle of all that Fleetwood Mac stuff. He was and we tried to get him on the first album, but he was doing Tusk. Okay. So I, I went over to him and introduced myself and, um, the band had just started downstairs. So it was loud and hard to hear. And he said, how long are you in town? And I thought he said, how long have you been in town? And I said, just a couple of days. And he said, oh, I'd invite you out to my house. And I said, well, that's cool. You know, and um, so I said, we're looking for a producer. And he said, well, I just got off the road with Fleetwood Mac. Um, and I'm, I got them to do. So we went out to his house, which was right off of Paradise Cove there in, in L.A., or what is that there? Well, what that I don't know what that section is called. But Laguna um, Beach. 
Is that what that the is? Valley. I don't know. Uh, yeah, he's right on the ocean, pretty much. Right. And um, we hit it off again. You know, it's it's all about personalities with us. Yeah. We have to like the guy. And um, we spent the next four months recording Tongue Twister at the United Western, which is my favorite ever studio I've ever been in. Which is, I think, now it's called. It was Ocean Way for a while, and mm. Mm, I don't know what it's called now. It's it, it, they've renamed it again. But but you know, it was just the classic. Uh, United Western uh, just did all these fantastic. I'll talk about the Beach Boys. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a great, great sounding room. And when we built our studio that you were in, yeah, we, we based it around kind of the layout and the, the monitors that they had, and, and just kind of the shape of the room was like a smaller version of that studio. All right, okay. Um, so yeah, so that was we were lucky in that. And by the third album. Uh, Electra didn't give a shit. <laughs> I mean, MTV had happened and and was playing our videos, mm-hmm. but Electra was like, eh, big deal. No one cares. You know, who cares mm-hmm. about MTV? It's just, it's a flash in the pan. So, um, so they were uh, uh, Butch um, and uh, um, his band Spooner were doing a sh- uh, a thing in um, Madison for a TV show, and they asked us to come up and be the musical guest. So our idea was we'll take that video and we'll give it to MTV because they're wow. asking for more stuff, right? Right. So so we we spent the whole night editing and doing this, you know, kind of shoes in the round. We were playing together and doing uh, a version of a song that was going to be on the third album. And we gave it to MTV and MTV starts playing it. And Electra's legal department calls us up and says, you can't do that. And they called MTV and they had them pull the video off the air. And what song was that? It was In Her Shadow. Okay. And they said, you can't do that. It has to come through our label. You're licensed to this. We can sue you, blah, 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 blah. And um, so they pulled it from MTV. It's the last video MTV ever played of ours after that. They said, although when we were recording that next album, they hired a crew for their music news section to come in this in the studio and interview us. Mm-hmm. Um, but Electra would never finance another video for us after that. Who produced that third record? We did. You did? Yeah. Uh, Boomerang, uh, we decided at that point, screw this. You know, yeah. I mean, they had enough confidence in us where they could just let us do it. But they were still, I mean, at that point, the company was in such disarray internally that, that it's like when you get a substitute teacher, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can, you can get away with a lot of shit because the teacher doesn't know what's going on. Right. Um, the, the person that became, became head of A&R had been in the accounting department for nine years. Mm-hmm. And now through attrition, she became head of A&R and she, right. she says, I like this one song of yours, but I'd like to make some lyric changes. It's like, oh, my God. Nope. Nope. That's not going to happen. Yeah, that's not going to happen. So we could see they were crumbling. And you know how it is when you when you're with a label and you're signed by a particular person. at that I label. do. Yes, I, <laughs> I, I really do. When that person's gone, you're you're on a life raft on your own in the ocean. Yeah. And yeah. we had heard that the guy the guy that signed us was going to get fired by Warner Brothers because they were cleaning house. And uh, mm-hmm. they told him, you got nothing to worry about. We flew out, delivered the tapes, flew home. Two weeks later, he was gone. We said, yeah. oh, uh, you know, dead man walking. Right. And nobody cares. No, over, yeah. Over, yeah. Yeah. But another great thing that we had in the contract was we had a buyout clause. 
So it was, you know, how athletic deals are structured where there's option periods. Ours was after every two records. So the fact that we had started the third album was, was the beginning of the next auction period. They still owed us a quarter of a million dollars to record that fourth album. Right. Or to buy us out of the deal. Right. <laughs> so they opted to buy us out because that was cheaper. So that's where you got the money for the studio. Yep. Yep. Damn. Yeah. So we were, we were fortunate in, we were lucky in a lot of different ways, but also very cautious as we went along, you know. What, and you had a great lawyer, apparently. You know, yeah, we, yeah, we, we went through a number of lawyers, but yeah, we did have a really good lawyer. You know, we did, this was dumb luck. But we had a Chicago attorney when we first started because, you know, we were from Chicago. And he was you still the, got the you still got the Chicago thing. It's there. I can hear it. Is it still there? It's still there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah don't worry about it. It's not going okay, anywhere. Okay, thanks. And and so we took him with us when we went for that first meeting and we were panicked because we knew this guy had never negotiated with a major label before. Mm. So what we had done a year a year two years prior was we had established our own publishing company with this company called Bug Music. Yeah. And the owner of that was a friend of ours. We became good friends with him, Dan Burgoyce. And we actually hired him to manage us then. And he told us about a good lawyer out there to hook up with. So we hired him along with our, our lawyer to go in and negotiate, which freaked Electra out because you know, <laughs> two lawyers, which was just an, you know us being scared, but one was from Chicago and one was from LA. So nobody was doing anything under the table. You know, there were right. there were deals from other Chicago bands that were going on getting this huge upfront money because they were giving away points on the records. You know what I mean? They would say, oh, yeah, OK, well, you know, we'll, we'll take six percent on the record. And if you give us a hundred grand up front, you know, that none of that was going on with us because we had two lawyers that didn't know each other. So they couldn't do anything sneakier. Wow. And so that's where we got, you know, not and not only that. We insisted on doing a 12-song album instead of a 10-song album. And more importantly... That was a thing? Yeah. Well, you know what they, what labels do is they say, you can put on as many songs as you want. We're okay. Oh, they'll only pay you for 10. Right, right, right. So right, we right, get paid right. full boat for 12 songs instead of 10 and no preferred rate, no 75% rate on the publishing. You pay us 100% on the publishing. Wow, dude. And because we had our own publishing on the side, they couldn't negotiate that. And we, but we own that company. So, so it was like, you know, we had control over it all. Um, unfortunately, the company didn't know what they were doing as we got more into it. Um, but, but we came out of it where most bands explode. We did an interview a couple of weeks ago um, where all five or all three of us were on with, with these two other guys. And, and Gary said, um, uh, most bands explode a after you lose that deal because mm -hmm. it is so traumatic. You know, you know what that's like. Right. You have to, I mean, but it's just a record deal. You know, it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't right. minim minimize what you do musically. Right. You didn't start the band just to get a record deal. No, no. And it's harder, no doubt about it. But nowadays, yeah. There, what what is a major label now? I mean, we've outlasted the labels. You know, right. you do things. The big question I wanted to ask you this: How do you release something now? How do you release a record? If a John says, "This is why we haven't done a record since Ignition," is it, it's like it, it's it's like trying to 
spit without with having your mouth closed mm. there is no clear-cut release format right you know unless you want to just fish stuff out there to, to downloads right you've got to you've got to forget your old ideas about you know what releasing records are and you, you know you know that your whole mantra of there's no right way to do anything brother that's really you're forced to think that way now you know there is no right way right yeah so so what what do you what would you do if like john said what would we do if we had a brand new shoes album recorded in the bucket right now because well I'll, I'll give you an example gary has a finished completed solo album okay and he's had it for months but he doesn't know what to do with it because it's the same question what do you do well remember when the beatles used to put out singles they dole out singles and you know you, you sort of like let that uh, sort of happen over six months to a year, and then you finally, you know, put the record out. You know, I mean, we've we've done that before, um, and you know, you you keep that that window of people being excited about it. Yes, you know? yes. And so finally, the record comes out, and sure, maybe half the songs have been released, but the other half haven't. You know, and there is something about. I mean, I don't know if people still think this way or if this is too old school, but. But we still look at an album as being a novel, uh, right. a complete body of work. And and if they fit together, the sequence of things um, becomes part of the experience. Right. Um, so when you release a song at a time, it, it breaks that up. You know, you're getting a chapter at a time of this book sure. instead of the full thing. But think about like the way it used to be. You'd put the record out and then you'd keep releasing singles off of it. Yep. Reverse it. Think about it in, in reverse. You know, it's still the same thing. You're still breaking up and giving people chapters of that novel, but you're just doing it in, in the reverse way that you're used to. And that's the wonderful thing is that you can control your fate now. Uh, you don't need a label to do it. You can record a song today and, and put it up on, um, on iTunes tonight, really, if you want to. Yep. Um, but you, you know, you're, you're, you're dropping a, um, you know, a, a baggie into the ocean. Uh, at this yep. point, because everybody and his brother's doing that. Yeah. Uh, the advantage that you have, and to a certain extent we have, is there is a, um, a core audience that, that is will respond to you to, to the fact that you've released something new. Um, you don't yeah. have you don't have to go out there and start from scratch like a new band might have to do. Um, no, I mean, and I remember like you had a lot of advice for me like and and it was all really good advice and I, I remember you talking about you know like like you would you were like no no major label is going to sign us because you know we, we can't sell those millions of records but you know we can turn around tomorrow and sell you know 20 20 000 records and and you're like but they're not interested in that uh and you know like you were like working a cottage industry you know back then when, when we first started coming into to your studio and we started learning that. And, and you know, we're doing that now ourselves. Did you, that was all stuff I learned at your feet, you know? Did you know, um, did you meet the guys from Material Issue when they were yeah. working? Yes, yes. Well, I, I worked at uh, Subway when, when they were recording the okay. stuff. Okay. You know? Um, they, they did, they, they basically did the same thing that we had done 15 years prior where Jim... Um, was recording stuff and releasing on his own label had this pressing him up onto this label called big block records which was his label yeah and and putting things out in hopes that it would get picked up and noticed which it did it worked mm -hmm. again same 
the same theory. You get it out there and you create a demand for your stuff, even though uh, the, the, you, you have to act like you don't need the label. Right. And then that, then they want you. It's kind of like a woman, you know, <laughs> you right. got to act like right. you don't care. Yeah. And then they, you become more attractive suddenly. By the time we Electra came around to us, we literally had a bidding war going on. And the president of, of uh, Capitol Records, who was just really a sweet guy, very, we stayed friends with him. Um, he sent us a note that said, when you're done negotiating with Electra, come to us and we'll beat whatever it is that they, they offer you, which was a great offer, mm-hmm. but we didn't want to be whores about it. You know, we wanted to be, have integrity. And so when we declined, we, we sent him a you know, note that said, thank you, you know. And uh, he sent over a bottle of champagne with another note that said um, that that was really a classy thing. He really appreciated the fact that we had integrity with it. And, and that was really important to us. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this has anything to do with that. But, you know, when I first met the guys in Wilco, all they wanted to talk about was shoes. You know, they're, they're like... They came up to me and they're like, hey, you know, you're in local H. And I was like, oh, yeah, these guys want to talk to me. Like, you're from Zion. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, shoes are from Zion. And they start talking about you guys. And I was like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll do this, you know. But it was, I mean, you guys. Oh, they had to put you off. Oh, you no, 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 no. For a second. And then I was like, I'm just, I was just glad that they wanted to talk to me. But, you know, they wanted to talk to me because of you. Um, you know, you guys have that thing, you know, that there's a cult to shoes, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird position to be. One thing I like about, I, I've I've often said that we're lucky that we never had a hit Mm -hmm. because, you know, you know, the guy about tomorrow night, that's a bit of a hit. Well, yeah, it it did, but it wasn't a, a, uh, you know, it wasn't my Sharona, Mm -hmm. you know, but name me another song by the knack you know or or pick a band you know that, that had a huge hit um let's say survivor i have the tiger okay what was their second single after that mm-hmm. or their third or Something any that, no, no. you know can't hold it, back in, in other words it's it's a <laughs> right 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 it's a it, chain around your neck Yes. The thing that easy whitey, you're cutting deep. I know exactly what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's one of those things where where if you ask ten different shoe fans what their favorite shoe song is, you'll probably get eight different answers. Right. And that's as a songwriter, as a musician, that is what you want to accomplish: is the fact that you're affecting different people in different ways. We're not locked into any one particular genre, like a song like Hot Mess, for somebody to say, oh, that's not shoes. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. We're as influenced by the Stones as we were by the Beatles. Right. You know, I mean, but it might not show up all the time. It, it's, it's, it depends. Sometimes it comes out and sometimes it doesn't. I don't like, we don't like to be pigeonholed in, in saying, oh, you guys are power pop. I mean, part, part of the reason power pop exists is because there's no other name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to me, Foo Fighters are power pop, mm-hmm. and and so are Jet, um, and so are Fountains of Wayne, mm-hmm. um, you know. But they're, they're and, and Fleetwood Mac. That's all power, especially Lindsay's stuff. That's right. that all fits in that same category to me. Or, or Queens of the Stone Age, or you know, there is a sense of melodicism to to the rock, and um, 
especially right. when we were when we were kids growing up, it was all called pop music. Right, but you guys have personified this idea as pop as an ideal, a pop as a concept. It's not necessarily a reality. Like you're playing pop music, and it's not, you know, it's not popular music. Right. But it's this idea of pop as this this thing that you you uh, aspire to, you know, and that's yep. something that you guys did. And and I guess that comes from the fact that when what Chicago radio was when it first when we first got into radio was listening to, to you know as a kid was they would play you know, a Motown song and a Beatles song and a Jefferson airplane song and, you know, and uh, uh, Bubble Puppy by, you know, <laughs> I'm smoking sassafras by Bubble Puppy or, uh-huh. uh, um, you know, <laughs> Question of Temperature by Balloon Farm, you know, back to back to back. Gabby like Bubble Puppy? I don't know what that <laughs> That's actually, that song was years ahead of its time. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, but it was all grouped in as pop music, so you were exposed to it, uh, mm-hmm. and and now it's become so frag- so so tightly fragmented. Um, but if you look at a band like, um, uh, take a take a band like Kiss, you know, probably the most popular song that that people would say, "I, I want to rock and roll all night, party every day." Right. But I think the most successful song they had financially was Beth. Mm-hmm. Is that a kiss, atypical kiss song? Right, 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 right. Or you remember the band Extreme? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the the song yeah. that broke, broke them? Yeah, I remember working at your studio uh, when that song came out, and you're yeah. like, "Yeah, it's kind of like an Everly Brothers type of thing." Yeah, which is not like anything that they do. Yeah, yeah, right. So and you don't want that to happen, though. That's you don't want to be. Yeah, I mean, right. there was a band from Chicago years ago. Did I do it again, Chicago? Uh, you did called jump in the saddle band and they were they were playing clubs all the time and they had a song called the curly shuffle (laughs) which was a joke the curly shuffle (laughs) they they would do it at the end of the night and it was you know this 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 joke song and it was like loud wainwright's dead skunk in the middle of the road Uh you can't get out from underneath of that and um you know loud wainwright was a big a big name in college radio and, and stuff back in the early seventies. Yeah. But once dead skunk hit, that's all anybody wanted to hear. Right. And, and that's the, I cur- didn't even realize jump in the saddle band ha- ha- had anything other than the curly shuffle. Exactly. Yeah. And they've been doing it for years. God, they probably, I don't know, even know. Maybe they got 10 albums. I don't know. No clue. No clue. No, no. And that's the shame of it is, yeah. is that people's attention span. And you probably saw this at uh, Island. Mm. Was I, I remember them saying something like, when when the Go Go's were trying to get a deal, you know, at that time, I remember somebody, oh, we already got a chick band. Yeah, it's like come on, yeah. you know, it's like if if you if they have one band that that represents a specific genre, right. they, they think they got it covered. You right. know? So, <laughs> and that that kind of mentality, it, it just it. It makes it so hard for bands to, to step outside of this pigeonhole that they want to put you in and say, oh, local H is this, shoes is this. I mean, I've worked with a lot of different stuff in the studio over the years, some really great stuff and some really horrible stuff. But I always yeah. tried to make it sound as good as I possibly could because you just never know. 
when um, I was sitting here at my computer one day and I heard this song and I thought, God, I know that song. What is that? And in the other room, Lori had, my wife had TV on and it was uh, America's Got Talent. You yeah. know, one of those. And whoever was doing some kind of gymnastic aerobic thing, the song that they were you, you that we were playing as their backdrop was a song that we had done at short order. Yeah. With this band that that I don't think they ever got signed, but I I, I thought it was a great album. I was really happy with it. And here it was on NBC. And I thought, that's so cool. The fact that that stuff sneaks out there in, in some kind of way mm -hmm. and finds a hole. Um, I wish there was more of it. I wish there was more bands that did that. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, now it's, it's just not the same. I mean, it's, it, you have to, like you said, you have to forget about the, all the things that you and I thought about when we release a record, those are all gone. Right. You know, you don't get a song on the radio anymore. Radio doesn't right. play new music. You know, you, there's no MTV. There's, yeah. there's really no record label to speak of. Right. And if, if they were around, what would they do? Put records into Best Buy? <laughs> right. Right, 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 there's right, no right, record exactly. stores to put them into anymore. They so, just fuck it all up again. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, so how do you, I mean, we still love making music. I've, I've been, I've had friends, that's what I've been doing the last, especially during the pandemic, is I would have friends send me tracks and say, hey, you got any ideas for this? Oh yeah, okay. I'll do some bits, do a guitar part, do a vocal thing and send, send them the tracks back. Um, just to, because I still love music. I mean, yeah. your whole premise of the show, Lifers, is the fact that you're in it, man. You're in yeah. it and you take it to your grave. You may not always have a, a, a an avenue to release it, but it is ingrained in your soul. It's in your spirit, and there's not a day that goes. I mean, I see John and Gary virtually every day. Yeah. But, but we still have this kind of, what do we? What should we do now? It, it's 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 a hard thing. Gabe, yeah, well, Gabe, were I mean, you going to say? Did you have an answer for me there? Oh, I, I got a couple of questions I've been trying to sneak in here, but... Uh... Oh, go for it. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got yakky. No, that's all right. You're, you're a very interesting person to listen to because you have stories about how it happened, you know, before, you know, the things were happening in the, in the 90s, but, you know, yeah. it's it's fa it's just fascinating. But oh. I've, I've got a question about somebody who might have grew up in the Lake County area and know, knew the music business. Was, was there an old roller rink that had, uh, like, concerts... In Waukegan, like from way back in the seventies and eighties, or any kind of venue like that, because I had stories, heard stories about like about the park roller rink. Yes, is that was that was that a place? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll go back even farther than that. And and my wife, who's from Waukegan, um, we talked about this the other day. There used to be a club. Well, there used to be a DJ in Chicago called Dex Card, and he owned Good the name. Do you remember the name? No, Dex Card. I think he was on WCFL. It was either it, there were only two AM stations at the time that anybody cared about around here, and it was WLS and WCFL, mm. and they, that was that was what we got fed for the '60s, until FM radio happened in like '68 or '69. But Dexcard owned a club in Waukegan, on the corner of Lewis Avenue and Belvedere, right across from Belvedere Mall. Wow! And it was called the Wild Goose. And you know, when you're a 14 year old kid, that's what you want to go. That's where you wanted to go. That's what you wanted to get into. Of course, you had to be 15 or 16 to get in. So I never made it. They closed the place before I got in there. <laughs> but they would talk about it on the on the Chicago radio station. Uh, 
you know, all the time. And I thought, oh, God, that's what I want to do. That's where I want to go. That's what I want. I, I didn't think I could ever learn how to play an instrument, but I just wanted to be part of that scene. And, and that's what was so exciting about the 60s. And, you know, especially post Beatles stuff was there was a band on every block, in every garage, in every basement, in every town. It was so exciting because everybody wanted to be in a band and there was so much, it was so vibrant and exciting and creative. And now, hell, show me somebody that plays the guitar anymore. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a producer's medium. It's all changed. Yeah. Um, but yes, there, there were places in, and like I said, Night Gallery, which was my favorite club, was in Park City, um, right off of uh, Belvedere and 41. Um, great, great club. Well, Gabe, did you know? Did you know that Shoes recorded a record at the Zion Ice Rink? Really, I didn't know that. Shoes Four, on Ice. Forty years ago, in May. Forty years ago, we we um, we brought it. And okay, let me tell you another record co company disaster story on that. Um, <laughs> because that was literally blocks from where we had our our recording setup, we decided to do a show at the Ice Arena bring in a real product, a real production company, real sound and lights and everything. And uh, the local radio station, WXLC, was pumping it pretty hard, which was nice. And um, so we decided to take, at that point, we had an eight channel tape machine to take it over and record the show. So we would have it, you know, have some extra material for something, a live show. Shoes, the band that never plays live, right. having a live recording. Um, uh, so... Unfortunately, we said to the guy that was running the board, worry about the house, get the front of house together after you get the monitors together mm -hmm. and then set the levels on the tape machine. Well, he forgot to set the levels on the tape machine mm -hmm. until the very end of the show. He got the last six songs of the show and then literally the tape ran out during the, the, the chanting before the encore, you know, during the crowd. So we took those six songs that's why it's an EP. That's why it's an EP is because the, the sound man forgot to set the levels. They were so distorted. <laughs> it was so distorted. You can get. So we had these six songs. So we started putting it out on cassettes to people in our fan club. I don't know. We sold it for two bucks or something, you know, uh -huh. just to make it available. And again, we get another call from the legal department at Electra. You can't do this. You're signed to Electra. It has to come from us. Yada, yada. So we said we want to give this away. We want to give, you don't have to pay publishing, just make it available. Mm. So they decided to press up a sec, sec, uh, separate 12-inch disc to go with Boomerang, the third album. And um, But they said, yeah, but we don't want all six songs. We only <laughs> want four. Mm. It's like, you dipshits, it's free. Takes yeah. the six songs. And um, no, we only want four. Well, we booked time to do the mastering and we said, fuck them. We're going to master, <laughs> we're going to master all six songs, you know? So we mastered all six songs and they're, they're calling the mastering lab, but we just refused their calls. And then when we finished it, we knew they were too cheap to want to go in and remaster it again. Yeah. So we got our way. So it was a free giveaway. Unfortunately, they didn't in with the album. They just, it was a separate thing altogether. So they would send it to the record stores you know, in a separate box. Well, you know, those the managers, those record stores, they're just taking them home and selling them because right. they're free. Who knows? Who cares? And right. yeah, so another Electra screw up.
I've got some information for everyone. Uh, Ocean Uh-oh. Way is now United Recording Studios. Oh, again? And yeah, they changed it back. In 2015, it was sold and renamed United Recording Studios. Great, great. Um, if, if Scott, if you ever get the chance to go out there, it's just a wonderful studio. I'll and try. the Jump in the Saddle band only did the one album. Oh, really? Okay. But the label wanted them to record a follow-up. They wanted to them. They insisted that they record that song, Shaving Cream. Mm-mm. You know, like, you know, that old yeah. Dr. Demento song? Yes, yes. Where it's like every time they're about to say shit, they sing Shaving yes. Cream instead of shit. Scott, yeah. you don't know this song? Oh, well, it's going to be on the playlist. <laughs> I don't. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the band was like, fuck you. And they recorded some lyrics about the label being assholes. And so it never got released. And You know, when we when we did, um, um, when we were doing the third album, um, again, like I said, Electra was in dis- total disarray. But they, in recording in Chicago, we figured we were kind of isolated from the bullshit. Because, you know, the offices that we were dealing with were in Los Angeles. But they flew in. Uh, to hear some stuff. And um, we had a song called Mayday on there. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, I was, I was a little loaded when I did the vocal, but I liked it, <laughs> you know? And um, at one point I stepped on my headphone cord and kind of pulled them off my headphones. And I went, Ooh, and you know, no big deal, but it, you know, it was, it was in there and I had some change in my pocket and it was making noise, but I liked the track. <laughs> and, um, this the woman who had become head of a and r says uh, "Ooh, that vocal's a little bit rough uh, you want to go in and redo that vocal i said oh yeah okay we'll take care of that and um and then there was another song that they said do not put this record on this song on the album we don't want this song on the album what uh, was it uh, curiosity okay that's such a good song exactly exactly so we said fuck them we didn't tell me we didn't redo the vocal and we put that song on so now we're sitting in the office in los angeles during playback and all the executives are sitting there and the woman turns when the song comes on with a with a vocal thing she turns around she goes did you redo that vocal and i said (laughs) uh yep and she and she listens for a second she says it sounds much better now doesn't it i said yeah (laughs) yes it does (laughs) and curiosity was one of the most successful songs on the record one of the songs they said they didn't want to use so so they you have to trust your instincts and we were lucky that we had enough confusion at the label and enough clout and power within there that we were able to get our way almost all the time um you stuck to your guns man and that's something you know i really learned from you and you know it, it doesn't matter what happens it's like if if you stick to your guns and if you fail, at least you didn't sell out and fail, you know, and, and that was a thing that you taught me. That's a that's a really important thing that you just said, because our motto there, I, I read this in a magazine and it was it was some uh, Latin American company or country that, that said had this slogan on a poster and it said it is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. Mm-hmm. And that became our mantra was I want to fail doing what I want rather than to be successful doing what you tell me to do because it's it's a hollow victory if you are successful doing what they do but it, and, and you were all, you will always be and if you fail then you're always right. haunted by the fact that I should have done what I wanted to do in right. the first place there's no guarantee that you're going to be successful selling out right you know? and and they were attracted to you for a reason and that was your musical instincts and you have to trust that 
um, it, it does get crazy. I don't know the pressure that you went through now because you're the sole writer for your music. So that's a tremendous pressure. That's the same thing that Jim from Material Issue was going through yeah. where, where, I mean, I only have to write four songs, five songs a record. You got to write all of them. But it doesn't that bring its own kind of pressure? Like you guys, were you guys fighting about like space on the record or was it always everybody gets four songs per record it was, and then trying to pick a single? I mean, that must have been murder. It was, it was always, I mean, we are, we are, we're, we're brothers in more than one sense. We love each other. We, we demand equal representation all the time. Mm -hmm. The very first thing that we did for another label, I mean, well, in, in when we did Black Final Shoes, it was very intentional that there were five songs by each of the three writers, equal, right. equal representation. And then when we had our first chance to do something for another label, um, there's a label out in California called Bop Records, mm -hmm. which, which kind of mutated into um, uh, uh, natural sound, um, uh, alive natural sound, which is where uh, the Black Keys came from. Mm -hmm. um, and this bomb wanted us to do a single. And they, they knew what they wanted us to do was to do a remake of the song OK, which was on yeah. Black Vinyl Shoes. OK, well, John wrote OK. Well, so that leaves two writers out, but only one side left on the single. So what do you do? You're right. Gary and I co-wrote a song. That was our answer to keeping all three writers represented as early as that, 1977. Right. To, to keep all three of us, because we didn't want one of us driving a, a VW and the other guy driving right. a Lamborghini. We said- So what song was that? Was that Tomorrow Night? That was Tomorrow Night. Yeah. And um, we, even within that, we, we our publishing is set up so that no matter whose money, whose song brings in the money, it's split equally between the three of us. There is no infighting for that kind of stuff. It's just ego. It's just, right. ego is too strong of a word. I mean, even though that is the underlying factor, it's the fact that as an artist, you want, you want to get your, your you want to be represented. You want to, mm -hmm. you don't want to, it's like somebody said, you don't want to lead, but you don't want to follow. You know, you, we're in a three-man sack race. So you can only go as fast as the slowest guy, but you don't want to, you don't want, none of us wants to be the leader and none of us wants to be the lagger. So mm -hmm. we, we, we do everything by committee, and it has to be unanimous or we don't do it. Yeah. Um, which is probably why we haven't done anything in eight years. <laughs> <laughs>
last one was pretty great. Uh, I don't know what you did with ignition, but I mean, if you could do that again, I don't see a problem. It, that was a that was a, one of those albums where what happened? A friend of mine just do it again, Jeff. Is what I'm trying to. Say. <laughs> a friend of mine had died, and and oh. and I wrote this little lament for it, and I played it for John, and John said, "She put drums on it." You know, and I said, well, it's just a song. And he goes, no, put some drums on it. And so I did this kind of thing. Uh, and and he said, um, and I, I gave him a copy and I gave it to Gary. And uh, they called me up then, you know, weeks later. And they said, hey, can you come over? You want to listen to this? I said, what's that? Well, we were working on your song. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, really? So, and they, what they did was they double timed it and they put drums in the chorus and they kicked it into this different gear. And I was like, oh shit, it became a real song. Yeah. And they were pleased with the fact that I was open to that. And so we just kept going and that's where yes. ignition came from. We just kept working, um, you know, bringing in bits and and piecing it together, and and we didn't tell anybody about it. John kept saying it's like a a pregnant woman doesn't tell anybody until mm-hmm. she's in her second trimester. <laughs> right, you know? exactly. Uh, there was a woman writing our, our bio at the time. That the, I don't know if you've read that. It's called uh, I did. Boys yeah. don't lie, and the whole first chapter is about Zion, and it's she really she's a history teacher. Uh, she's an English lit teacher in upstate New York at a college up there. And and she wrote the whole first chapter is really fascinating about the city of Zion and Dowie wow. and all these things that we were talking about. But we didn't even tell her her we were doing it. She was writing, the, literally sitting in Lib- Gary's living room uh, interviewing us. She would fly in and, and interview us and then go back and write. And, then, and we didn't tell her we were doing the album until it was done because yeah. we didn't know how far we were going to get. Were we going to call it off? Um, the older you get, the more precious that time is. Uh, we spent 18 months um, because you know you you're doing it between what you do during the day. I was I was I was fixing gear at a music store. You know yeah. that's what I was doing because we decided to shut the studio down in 2004. Um, so sorry to hear about that. that you know sucks. it was it was our, not only was it our studio, it was a clubhouse. That's what, that was our meeting yeah. point, but it got to the point where we could see digital was coming in. We were always, we never lacked for work. I will say that as a studio, we never, um, we never went through a dry period. We had all kinds of stuff um, come to us. Um, Material issue, Jim was a great salesman. And so we got a lot of bands from Chicago. I never worked with the Pumpkins, but um, you know, there were a lot of bands that came up that we got, but butch butch work did uh siamese dream uh for the pumpkins yeah. um and, and of course butch did nirvana too so yeah, i know a lot of people uh that i'm friends with in chicago who, who made the trip up to zion to work at your place and every time i go to chicago for something and i drive back i marvel at what a pain in the ass it is <laughs> to make that trip that these people were were driving up to work with us uh, yeah. I, I, I am eternally grateful and thankful and and uh, appreciative that those people, you know, uh, would do that because it speaks volumes about the work that you did. Yeah, I, I I'm like I said, I, I'm I'm proud of everything, even if the music was crappy. I'm, I, I try to be proud of the work and say, you know, at least it sounds good. I try to make it sound, <laughs> sound like a right. record, even though it's 
it's uh <laughs> right when we first started going to your place, I would always try to get a read. I was like, what does he think of this? And you would like never look at us and you'd always bob your head. I was bobbing. What's going on in that that head of his? I was but Scott, you were always you, you were you were very introspective, so I never knew what you were thinking. You know, so uh, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> yeah, just you know. Nothing. Just when, when can I when can I get out of here? Yeah. I, it, but it was it, now Gary because Gary was down in the, Gary eventually quit what he was doing and came to, 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 cause the record company got uh, going to the point where I couldn't keep up with doing both. I couldn't do the studio and the record label at the same mm. time, even though that that's the way it started. Um, after a couple of years of that, it, you know, we hired somebody to, to work, uh, to, to do the offices and then Gary quit his job and he was in the office, which gave him time where he could be more socially engaged with other yeah. people. You know, I mean, he was on the phone with Butch and, and with you and, you know, and had yeah. conversations. And uh, um, there's a documentary coming on Material Issue. And they were they were filming it. And they came here and did some, we did some interviews. And, and uh, the third album that Material Issue did, they recorded with Michael Chapman. Mm-hmm. And Michael Chapman, you know, he's a name producer. He's a big name yeah. producer. He's a big dog. And, you know, did the knack. He did Blondie. He did, uh, you know, Sweet, which Jim was a big fan of. And I understood it. I understood Good songwriter. It. Yeah, I under, understand it. You know, you, you got a chance. You don't want to drive to Zion. I mean, you guys, when you had your chance to, to record, you worked with Roy Baker, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, at his studio. You did. That's top notch, first class stuff. I understand when a band does that. They want to come to Zion to do it. So, um when they worked with Michael Chapman, that was their big thing. The problem is, you know how labels are, when they got that big guy involved mm-hmm. and that record doesn't sell 5 million copies, mm-hmm. they don't blame themselves or their promotion or timing or anything. They say, it's your fault right. and you get dropped. That's the right. way it goes. So, yeah. so, so material issue got dropped. And um, in this documentary, the majority of the footage is them working with Michael Chapman because they shot an EPK for the the release of that, and that's what exists. Yes, exactly. There's no footage of me working with them because, right. frankly, their first album was demos. That, right. Those were the demos that we had done. Polygram liked it, released it as is. I mean, I did a little tweaking, you know, to to fix some things that were a little wacky, but that we recorded that first album for six grand. Yeah. You know, and they, their their budget on the first album, they got a hundred grand, so they put ninety four thousand dollars in their pocket before they even got signed. I mean, it was like bang. So, so it, it it's it's unusual to me that they're focused on the third album because they really didn't have much success with the album. Right. But the the the, the point is that, like I was talking about, how I didn't have the time to be social with people because. You know, Material Issue talks about, you hear him talking about the third album, and they're like, oh, man, it was a party, and we had all these guys in, and, you know, they, we had, uh, you know, Chip from Chip, uh, Enough's Enough was in, and Rick Nielsen came in and played guitar. There was always a bottle of vodka. I thought, well, fuck, you guys weren't going to pay me to party because that was your money buying that album. So <laughs> you wouldn't have liked it if I'd have said, hey, there's a bottle of vodka in the fridge. Let's hit it. I was there to do a job and to get it done and to move on. Was and, there some vodka on the second record? Um well, the second record was a different story because of the fact that they came under immediate pressure because they wanted to use me on the second. They didn't want to. Jim wanted to. 
mm-hmm. uh, used me on the second record. There was dissension within the band, but Jim called the shots. He was the singer, the songwriter, yeah. the guitar player. He called the shots. It was his big band. personality too. Yes. Yes. Which could be abrasive. I mean, yeah. but he was down deep. He was a good guy. Yeah. And, um, and he looked, I read an interview where he said he looked on me as sort of his big brother that he never had. Yeah. And, and I thought that's kind of the relationship that we had, you know? Um, so he felt safe. I, you know, he knew I wasn't trying to rip him off. I was trying to do what was best for them. And, um, and it worked. They had, they had virtually all, all but one of their hits were, were from those first two records. They had Steve Albini come in and mix a song for Material Issue once. Uh, just what song was that? Yeah, it wasn't exactly Steve's cup of soup. No. Um, I remember him saying, uh, you know, I played him the mix that I had done on it, and he he said something like, I don't know why I'm here. It's pop, <laughs> it's pop music. It's mixed as good as it can. Yeah. He, but um, he um, they, they wanted to use – see, but part, I think part of it was – that was about the time that Nirvana was successful. So they wanted me to, to call Butch, you know, and say, mm-hmm. hey, can you get Butch so we can put his name on the record? It's like, right. I said, fuck you. I'm not going to use my friendship with Butch to 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 promote your product. If you want to call Butch as a business decision and say, hey, do you want to come in and do a mix? That's your business. Right. But I'm not going to do it for you. Right. You know, um, so yeah, it was that there, I had kind of that relationship with with uh, Polygram at the time, where it was uh, they couldn't wait, wait to get me out of the picture. Yeah. <laughs> and so they had Andy Wallace come in and mix it, who Andy had mixed. Uh, yeah. Nirvana. Um, never mind. And um, and even that they snuck on me. What they did was I had I had a vacation plan for about six months where I was going to Mexico for ten days, and the recording of the second Material Issue album ran over. Um, and we were in the middle of mixing. I had mixed like 10 of the 14 songs and, um, they had my, my, uh, tape op, my assistant run off a copy and they sent it over to Andy Wallace and had him mix, mix the single. But then the band what said, girls want? what's that? What girls want? Yeah. But the, yeah. The, the only problem was I had a lot of stuff stored in the computer that he didn't get. Mm-hmm. So he had to copy my mix because, so he had to recreate these pieces and then the band said, look, we don't like what he did in the in in a certain section here. We like what he did in the third verse, but not, we didn't like the bridge. So so I did the Strawberry Fields thing. I took his mix. I took my mix. I cut them together. And so wow. so what you hear as the single and what's on the album is actually two mixes spliced together um, because they didn't he, he had done done something they didn't like. In, in his- when when is when is the splice that his mix comes in? Um after the um the bridge okay um it, after it, that scream that one yes yeah. and that scream was on the demo when we demoed because we demoed the whole album first so i could learn what the songs were and try to figure out how to because jim would just like plug in a guitar and play like, like it was acoustic it was just this right. wall of <clears throat> and and i would have to try to figure out a way to make this song different from that song and so uh when he did the scream on the demo of what girls want it was great and we went to do the final version he tried to redo it and couldn't get the same right. i said look i said we used a click track it's at the same tempo i'm going to take that scream off the demo and fly it in and that's what yeah. that's what i did um and so it's right after that um because there's a verse um after that where it strips down the guitars kind of come out right that's the andy wallace uh, stuff 
Okay. When it goes to, I'll have to take a listen. Yeah. See if I can yeah. see if I can spot the strawberry fields cut. You know, you know what you how you can feel it is if you have a system with a good bottom end, the kick drum, the, the feel of the kick drum changes because I used a, an acoustic, I mean a real drum, and um, either he triggered a sample, yeah, or he, which he likes to do, he'll mix, yeah. you know, real. He did a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. And did you work with Andy? No. Oh, but you knew he, yeah. But I'm aware of what he did. Yeah. And so the kick drum, his ver- his is, is is a tighter kick drum sound. Mine is more woofy on the bottom. And yeah. you can feel that change coming out.
Hey, Gabe, you had another question. I'm sorry, I didn't. I didn't get to your second one. <laughs> I'm 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 still fascinated by your stories, but uh, just going back to when when Local H was demoing at short order, and you know, because I worked in Waukegan at a print shop down the street, and I'd, I'd go to work. And I'd get off of work and just haul ass to try and get to the studio because, you know, those guys were in there recording with you. But, you know, just talk about how, how that kind of uh, experience was in the early days when, when the guys were demoing. You know, I remember one, one thing I particularly remember, and I don't remember. I think it was, Scott, I think it was your idea where you wanted a really distorted snare drum. So, <laughs> so you wanted it to be like overloading the council. You wanted everything to be in the red just on the snare drum, which was, you know, Joe is, is a real hard hitting. Yeah, drum. I was believe you me. I think it was the song. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> do you remember? You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and man, we and and it was like bang. Yeah. And, and I remember and I remember another song where you wanted to do this thing with your voice, so you held a fan up <laughs> and you sang into the fan, so you got that kind of right flanging phasing thing going on right do you remember manipulator that? Yeah, yeah the song was manipulator. you know the song yeah. yeah yeah well i ended up doing that on the record too you see that's the and and i remember when when um you you graciously flew my wife and i out um to visit when you were recording uh pack the cats with with roy baker and um i remember uh one of the songs that you were you were doing was um um uh, oh God, ACDC. Um, oh, it's a long way to the top. If you want to rock and roll, yes, yes. Yeah. And, and you used um, uh, instead of the bagpipes, you didn't use bagpipes. You used a, um, a hurdy gurdy. Yes, which yeah. see that is the thing. That's what I love. I love doing unorthodox crap. Um, one thing that 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 we did in the early stages because of out of necessity couldn't afford a distortion pedal. Okay. So I pulled the guts out of a tape recorder. Go ahead. You were gonna no, say no, 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 no. I was going, one of the things I really wanted to ask you is how you got that guitar sound that sounds like it's a keyboard. That's the it's one. not a keyboard. It's a keyboard. All right, here we go. Go ahead. Yes. Um, like I said, since I was a little kid, I had one of those little tape recorders with the little reels. I just fascinated by the, the recording, fascinated by the mechanics of it all. And I got that, I think, when I was seven or eight years old. And I saved that all those years. And then when we started recording and I couldn't afford a distortion box, I still had that old tape recorder. I tore the guts out of it. I disconnected the, the record head and I put a jack on it and the volume control. And I fed that straight into the board or into the tape machine. Right, and it it distorted in a really unique kind of way. It's it really compressed it, and really it had those this, overtones. Yeah, and stuff it had it. really yeah. cool overtones, and and so that's the sound on like like the song "Fatal," the 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 the, the solo in that song "Fatal," or mm -hmm. in on present tense, "Your Very Eyes," the solo guitar in "Your Very Eyes," or "Girls." Would have been. It was, yeah, it's it's all over the place. Yeah, it's, I used it a lot. And, and people think it's a keyboard. And yeah, it's not. It's not. That, which is why we would put on our albums no keyboards. And it yeah, was it, it wasn't like you were like Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah, well, we but we weren't doing it to be elitist. We weren't doing it to say fuck you, no keyboards, asshole. We were doing it because people were saying, "Who plays keyboards in your band?" Right. We're saying, "No, right. it's all done with guitar." And we I want people to know. Yeah, we want so we wanted people to know. And um, I, you know, I showed. Uh, um, 
we've got some friends coming in this weekend and um um do you know the rubenus nope oh rubenus are a band from the from the east uh, west coast and they've been around since for a long time and, and okay. uh, um bass player al chan's a friend whenever he comes in him and his wife and we have him over and um <clears throat> my wife said you better dust some of your guitars off you got because i have guitars all over the house and it's hard to keep you know it's hard to keep up with them right so my wife said you clean your guitars so i picked one up and i said you know you, i said you see the finish on this the way that the lacquer has bubbled up i used to have a gadget called a gizmatron right have you ever heard of a gizmatron yeah the guys from 10cc designed it that band right. 10cc <laughs> and i remember was, you having one yeah and it was this it was really primitive and it didn't work real well but it was a cool idea um because you know where jimmy page had would bow his guitar strings right. on you know led zeppelin get his bow and he get it was electronic where you had this thing that would you tape to the guitar and it had a, a, a rotating shaft a motor with a rotating shaft right. there were six little buttons with with wheels that would come down and it would touch that rotating shaft so this wheel is spinning and then it would brush along the side of the string so right. it was it was infinite bowing. It was like a mechanical e-bow, right? And and you could make chords. You could infinitely play this thing, but it was really temperamental. You couldn't use it live. Uh, the, the the motor was picked up through the pickups, and you know it was it had all kinds of problems. But that's the kind of crap that we used to love to do. Right. You know, plug this into that, and 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 make these god awful noises. Um, we had a song called. Um, your imagination and it originally started off with a song i called called bad habit and i don't know why i was writing about you know the white heat you know? mm -hmm. uh, and and um i went away for the weekend because i was going out with this girl from rockford and when i came home john and gary had been working on this song they like to do that to you you know it's kind of yeah and it starts off with this really cool rolling bass sound i'm like what the hell is that what and and they had done this flanged it and chorused John's bass and and it became the hook of the song and it, it turned into this song called Your Imagination. But the album version didn't sound as cool as the demo did. Right. It because never does. Yeah. Because demoitis. Demoitis. The the first thing you do, you do it out of inspiration. Right. And then after that, you're just trying to copy yourself. What did I do? Yeah. How did I do that? You know? And it, yeah. it's it's not as cool. That's the wonderful thing about digital is if you do something that you really like, hell you can use it. Fly it in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely learned that lesson at your place too. It was like, why doesn't this sound as good as the demo? Yeah. And of course it does. Right. Yep. But you're just at the time, you're like, you're so married to it. Well, because you, when you do your demo, there's something about it that drives you on with it, that, 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 that attracts you to it and says, yeah, that's a song I'm going to re-record for the album because right. you've captured some kind of magic there. Um, when you go to re-record it, uh, you know, you're, the, you're chasing yourself you're chasing yeah. your tail and and the slightest little thing will be different um right we did um someone asked us not too long ago if if we would as a band do some background vocals to a song we said sure so um because that's our like one of our favorite things to do we just love vocal harmonies and um so we sang the vocals well unfortunately when when they took it and they went back to their studio to mess with it. They decided they wanted to re-record their main vocal. Well, so now the phrasing is different. Now we don't quite lock up perfectly with, right. with where he's stopping his syllables and ending his words. And there was a little bit of pitch issues 
that we went along with, you know? Well, then when right. he corrected his pitch, now we sound like we're slightly flat. Right. So it's, you react to what you hear and you build around that. Every, every piece becomes crucial. It's like a game, game of Jenga, you know, where if you yeah. pull out the wrong piece, the whole thing crumbles. It, it, everything rests on each other. So you have to, that balance is really important, that, that combination of things. Yeah. All right, I've got three more questions I have to get in before, before you know, and it's not like we got to go, but I just don't want to forget them. Okay. Well, it's a school night, I know. Yeah, no one's. So you, you were, you know, you're the biggest Beatle fan I know. Uh, favorite Beatle, or do you reject the idea of a best Beatle? I, I, re I reject it. I've learned, I just literally today um, was talking to a friend of mine um, uh, about the Beatles because he's a great guitar player and um, probably the best guitar player I've ever had in the studio. Mm -hmm. And um, he's he was asked to do some Beatles stuff recently and he was talking about his appreciation for George Harrison. Yeah. And And I was saying to somebody recently how the person I've really come to appreciate is Ringo yeah. because if you take an album like, like Sergeant Pepper, mm -hmm. a lot of John's particularly John songs for, for Pepper were just ideas. They were just bits, little bits, but if you right. listen, Ringo strings them together, you know, like a song like uh, Lucy in the sky with diamond, it completely stops before the chorus. And what ties it together is Ringo just doing doom, doom, Boom, Lucy, you know, and then right. it takes off from there. But and there's so many instances of that happening. A little help from my friends or for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Um, there will be a stop where everything stops and Ringo does a little, you know, right. uh, or something that ties it together. His creativity um, is what I'm amazed at. Right. And it's the most underappreciated part of like, everyone's like, you know, yeah. he's not a good drummer. I'm like, are you nuts? Are you listening to what he's doing? And, and he, he, he said he listens to the singer, which I thought was really great. Most people think yeah. the drummer is a timekeeper, but it's, he was, he was a huge part in that, their creative process. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I mean, in, in the early days, my brother John pointed this out is Lennon's songs. They carried the band. I mean, really, you know, the early stuff, hard days, night, rubber soul, man, it was, it was almost all John's stuff that was really carrying the weight. Even when you get into revolver, um, you know, his songs like, you know, Dr. Robert or, or Andrew bird can sing, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, she said, she said, those were some really, I mean, but the song that absolutely blew my mind and still does, I heard, I've, we've been binge watching Mad Men. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but, oh yeah, you know, chronologically, they reach a point where it's right. 1966 and, and they, then he play, puts on the Beatles. They play Tomorrow Never Knows. Yeah. And, and then he's, and then he picks up the needle. It's like, yeah, not for me. Yeah. 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 And, and also, which was, which was incorrect. He plays it as if it's the first song on the record. No, it right. was, it was the last song on that side, but Fucking guys, but, but that song at the time I heard it. And you know, when I heard it, I would have been 12 years old, 11 mm -hmm. years old, blew my mind then. And it still gives me chills. It, it still gives me goosebumps up the back of my neck. And, and yeah. that's because of this thing that we were talking about, of, of, you know, using the hurdy-gurdy or, or using that little box 
they were they were do these things that were i mean strawberry fields is is an absolute bit of magic where they right. took they took two pieces recorded at right. times at different tempos no click track right string set and put them together and it fits what right. are the odds of that right um, he's like he says to george martin he's like you figure it out and he's like well this is these songs these parts are in different keys he goes you'll figure it out yeah. and, so they, and he did they slow well first off i mean and, and i didn't get this until a couple of years ago you know, I've always read, well, they took these two and they had to slow one down and they had to speed one up. And right. when they did, not only did the, the, the keys match, but the tempos matched. I mean, what are right. the odds of that? But what I didn't <laughs> understand was their tape machine didn't have a pitch control on it. Right. They had to design, they had to talk to the engineer and say, okay, here's what we want to do. We want to speed that tape machine up. We want to slow us down. Can you build us a box where we can speed those machines, change the speed of those machines? So they had to get the engineer to redesign the tape machine so that they could do that. Then they could speed one up and slow one down. And then it fits together. It's just genius. I mean, that stuff is, that out of the box stuff just gets me so, it's uh, incredible. You know, it's, it's so much fun. It's so much fun to record. Uh, um, you know, uh, I did a thing yesterday. I just finished it yesterday. This friend of mine sent me this piece that he had done to a piano. He, he was playing grand piano, and it was wasn't really to a click. It was to a click, but not really. I mean, he kind of more fluid than that. So, you know, it's like screw the click track. You just play to the music. You react to the to what's what's there in front of you, and it's you forget how much fun that really is. Yeah. Instead of with Pro Tools playing to the grid. Right. You know. Right. So the only best Beatle is Pete, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. So Pizza House Pizza, the best pizza in Zion or the best pizza in Zion? Well, somebody asked me the other day, weird that you would ask me about pizza. There used to be a place in Zion called Iris's Pizza. Iris's, Iris, yes. I remember Iris's. <laughs> that was good. Man, that was my favorite. That was my favorite. You like that better than Pizza House, Iris's. I, I, I think so. I mean, Iris's is long gone. Right. Um, and I never understood that pizza was different. You know, as a kid, you just got wherever you can. But yeah, Pizza House was good. You know, Quonset, also very good. Quonset's good. Wasn't there another one in Zion? Was it called Brudders? Yes, there was a place. Where was that? That was, I feel like it, it was on Sheridan Road as well. I mean, all those pizza places seemed clumped together. Do you do you remember a record shop in Zion named, named Brothers? Record shop? Well, yeah. this is Brudders. Oh, Brudders. Yes, brothers. yes, yes. Oh, Brudders. Um, that was the, oh, oh, God. Now you're talking. See, that was across from Pit Stop. Was it? Yes. Yes, okay. that was across so, from Pit Stop. Because what it was when I was a kid, it was a dog and suds drive-in. Uh -huh. <laughs> and we could hear the jukebox from our bedroom window at night. John and I would lay there with the window open in the summer. And we hear them you know, playing Beach Boys and Frankie Valley, and then the cars peeling out and just like, yeah. it was like American graffiti all over. And um, then it became Sarks. Right. And there was a little miniature golf course in the back. Uh -huh. And then, uh, and then it was Brothers. Brothers. I'm, I'm so, pretty sure that was the place. What's your jam now up in Wisconsin? Um, well, there's a Giordano's up here, which is nice once in a while, mm -hmm. but there's a, um, there's a uh, Roma's in uh, Winter Harbor. Yeah, yeah. They have really good pizza. Yeah. Uh, Roma's, that's that's probably, yeah. Tenuta's is, up here is good. 
Luigi's down the road is pretty good. I mean, Kenosha has a pretty heavy Italian population, so there's a lot of Italian, but they're still kicking it over at other place. The other place is still. Yeah, but the, now it's called something else, isn't it? Oh, the other place moved in with the lighthouse. Oh, that's right. Now it's the lighthouse. Now it's the lighthouse. And and the place where it used to be the other place is now a crab, you know, which, you know, if you want fresh seafood, where else <laughs> would you go? But too right. With Barber, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> but uh, yeah, it's hard to find. Um, if you like seafood, it's not a good area. <laughs> uh, which uh, it's not. Be right next to the lake. What's the difference, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they got a lot of lobsters down here. <laughs> All right, and so finally, uh, my dog's name is Karen, and her favorite song is Karen. So tell me a little bit about the song Karen. You know, it's unfortunate that things have gone the way that they have with with that name. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, but um, that John, I still think it's a beautiful name. Thank you. He he. It wasn't the girl's name that he wrote that song about, but it had okay. the same number of syllables. So that was John's way of being, you know, Clint. Was it Sharon? Uh, what? No, was no, it, it wasn't that close. It was just, you know. <laughs> You're not fooling anybody, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, the thing is, most of the songs that he wrote on that album were about that one relationship. And, mm. But he would, he would cloak it in these different contexts. And John has such an interesting way of writing in his voice. I don't know. Gary and I sound a lot alike when we sing mm-hmm. and we tend to be more uh, uh, alike in a lot of those ways, even though John's my, you know, my blood brother. Right. Um, it's, but John thinks in different terms. He's, he's, he, there's a, there's a certain approach that he has because he's an artist. I remember when we were kids at home, I, he, I walked down the hall and he'd be standing in the bathroom holding one of his drawings up against the mirror, up to the mirror. And I'm, I, I would say, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm trying to get a different perspective. You see it flip backwards in the mirror. You, you see things differently. And I thought, I never would have thought of that. You know, that he, he will labor over, uh, well, here's another thing that Shoes got into doing, our own artwork. Because you know, mm-hmm. we have graphics guys, John and Gary, it kind of become this became this default that John would name the album and and do the artwork for it. So when we finished the Silhouette album, which was the first thing we did after the Electric Contract, it was important that we get it released, but we couldn't get a deal in America. Mm-hmm. So we had we put together deals in Europe. We had one in England, one in Germany, one in France with these three different labels. But we were going to supply the artwork. And John wanted this look of a rubber stamp. So we ordered rubber stamp for all the song titles. And, but that wasn't good enough. Mm. Then he decided he wanted to have it sort of more funky looking. So he dipped it in ink and then he dips it in salt or, or sand or whatever. And then he's stamp, stomping it so that it, right. so that it has that kind of, you know, dirt look to it. And then he and then he had like sheets, pages and pages of a word. Like if the, the song title was uh, "Get My Message," he would have pages and pages of just the word "get." And he would say, "I like the word the T on this one, but I think the G on this one looks good." <laughs> He's like Kubrick. Oh my God! I said to him, "I said John, I said you, you know, you know, you Sergeant Pepper, 
I said, you know, you know the lyrics on the back of Sergeant Pepper? I said, you know that font they use there? And he says, no, I, I don't remember what I have to look at. I said, that's my point. <laughs> I said, you, you've delayed the album for six months because you're trying to decide between that letter T and that letter T. I mean, he, he gets so, he's so committed to this stuff. But God bless him for it, you know? The Beatles, they could win any argument. It could be for or against. You would use the Beatles for that. Yeah, you can, find, you can find a case, an, right. an example. Yeah. Can, I ask, can I ask a question, Scott? Yes, please, Ben. Um, Jeff, yes. you have, I've read interviews with you and you've talked about uh, Big Star being a big influence for oh, you yeah. guys. I was in college in the, I guess, mid, late 80s when the cool kids turned me on to Big Star. But it occurs to me that you must have heard Big Star when, when they came out. When they came out. How yeah. did you get, how did you hear Big Star? And and what was it like to be a Big Star fan when they were actually a, an actual band? You know, that's, again, I attribute that to, to, to John. John was, he would pour over, I mean, we were music people even before we could play. We, we lived and breathed. If, if, I, if somebody asked me what I was doing when I was, you know, eight years old or 10 or 12, I gauge it by what Beatle album came out that year. Mm -hmm. And John would study the reviews, which is part of how we, we got signed. Because then when we had our own music, we would say, hey, that guy reviewed an album that we like. Right. Let's send him a copy. Right. And that's we put together this network of, of writers based on that. And um, John read an article about Emmett Rhodes is another person that right. was doing stuff, you know, recording everything himself at home and released a couple albums. The first two albums that he did were just brilliant, like early McCartney stuff yeah, um, where he played everything. And we found out about this through reviews. I don't know if it was Crawdaddy. I don't know if it was. Uh, Cream or uh, Rolling Stone, but he read a review because John, like I said, would pour over these things. And then he, I remember he's, he was telling Gary, oh, you got to check out Big Star. And Gary wasn't real impressed with it at first. It takes a little while to get into Big Star. Hmm. But um, that first album really eventually was like, whoa. And when the second one came out, we were waiting for it. Hmm. Um, unbeknownst to us, the band was, was you know, Right. Breaking up and, you know, but uh, that stuff, I mean, and bands like, well, Nils Lofgren had a band called Grin, yeah, uh, which we were very influenced by in the early days, too. Um, now, he went on to, well, now he's in Springsteen's band, you know, he plays it. But, yeah. but, but at the time, nobody knew who, you know, Grin was either. Uh, so we were all, it's not surprising to me that, that Shoes is, uh, uh, call it a cult band or an underground band. Because that's what influenced us, the stuff that was right. flying under the radar. Um, we liked the commercial aspect of it uh, in terms of, you know, we liked the, the ones that sounded, you know, like they could be on the radio. But they were by bands that were that were that, that hadn't graduated. But that's part of what made it feel like you you'd found this buried treasure that no one else knew about. Um, so, yeah, when you use in, in that Scott, did I send you a copy of of my book? No, I, I just found out that you wrote a book. Yeah, I'll send you a, a kind of an e version of it. It's okay. Uh, um, 
I mean, I could, it's, it's print on demand at this point because it went out of print and I decided right. it should be available again. So I'm, but I, I'll send you, it won't have the front or back cover, but it, it kind of okay. talks about some of this stuff, but there's pictures of us at the manor because, and that's what inspired the book. I, I found a bunch of slides I'd taken when we were in England and I was taking pictures of mic placement, you know, like, oh, we got a right. AKG 414 on that pig nose. Um, and uh, Gary's wearing a big star shirt, huh. you know, in 79 when we're at the manor. Uh, which and uh, which nobody really knew who they were at, at the time right so uh yeah that was i got to meet jody i never met uh, alex but uh, i met jody um who was who was uh, a shoes fan surprisingly um you know uh not so it's not so surprising no no well i mean i guess the thing is i'm still uh in awe of of my my heroes you know and so when when i I hear that somebody's from well the fact that you said uh, the guys in Wilco when you when you get a chance to work with people that you that you uh, uh, have been listening to you 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 form preconceived ideas and when you meet them and they say oh yeah I know your stuff you're like kind of surprised you're kind of taken back it's like really you would listen to what I do right. it's flattering and, and inspiring at the same time so um, yeah I, I I still like even that I was thrilled when when uh, Lance sent me that picture with Rick Nielsen with the guitar. Um, and that's what I wanted to ask you, Scott. When you played with those guys um, mm. at Metro, how, how did that come about? How did you do that? I mean, um, that, that had to be a blast, right? It was a blast. It was also pretty terrifying because we took a break during the recording of Pack Up the Cats to do that. And Roy was like, he was like, I can't believe you're going to do this. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, I want to play with Cheap Trick, but I also want to see them play those four records so we're there and we play uh the song all the kids are right for the first time that night we debut it and it's a song about a show that goes horribly wrong so you know i just gotten well not just gotten it but i'm playing my matchless amp and it and it, and it goes out in the middle of that song so it was kind of like you know that song we should have never written it or recorded it because it just was tempting fate. You know, I mean, you know, you get dropped later because of it. You know, you get, you, you play it on stage and everything goes wrong. It's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. And Rick comes out and he's like, yeah, you want to plug into one of my amps? I'm like, thank you. And he's like, that's what you get for playing those expensive amps. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So later I, I they, they, they go, Hey, want to get up and, uh, play a song with us. I was like, great. You know what? And they go, I don't know. What do you want to play? I go, well, how about he's a whore? And they go, well, Oh my God. That's one of my favorite cheap tricks. It's great. It's great. And and I'm like, they go, well, let, let, let us think about it. And then like, and I go, okay. And then they come back and they go, how about, I know what I want and I know how to get it. And I go, great. I don't really know how to play that. He goes, don't worry. We'll run through it with you. Goes on and on. The night goes on there. They go on stage. I'm like, they were supposed to teach me this song and they didn't. And so uh, I'm backstage and they go, are you going to come up on stage? I go, well, I don't really know what to do. I don't know really how to play the song. And Bunny yells at me. He goes, do you want to play with us or not? And (laughs) so I'm just mortified. So I go up on stage and I'm thinking, I'm going to go up to Robin and say, look, I'll just sing. I'll just sing background. And I walk by Tom. Tom turns to me. He goes, don't fuck up my song, kid. And, <laughs> oh, God. Like, and I get over there and Robin takes the guitar off and basically throws it at me. So now I have to play the song. 
<laughs> and of course I screw it up and you know, Rick comes over and just like, stop, stop, stop. Just, you know, it, it, it didn't even try to pretend that it was going well, like <laughs> just in front of everybody. And, and wow. I've played on stage with them since then, but that was the first time and it did not go well. The, 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 the book I'm going to send you the, the very last picture on the very last page is, um, a couple of years ago, Cheap Trick played at Genesee Theater, which is, have you been yeah. to Genesee since they re, redid it? I haven't, no. Oh, it's I've beautiful. Been, yeah, I've been, I've been there. I, I was probably at that show. Oh, well, John and Gary went backstage beforehand just to say hi. Yeah. And um, and uh, same thing, Robin's like, you guys got to come out and sing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, Gary's in a T-shirt, you know, and jeans, and, 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 and uh, they said, well, okay, so we'll come, we'll come and get you. Well, I had gone up, I was out of town. I had gone up camping with Lori. Well, I call it camping, you know. We have one of those air, we had, we just sold it, one of those Airstream trailers. So yeah. we, were, we were up north. And um, John sent me this picture. And so they go out there and they're singing background vocals during uh, um, uh, Surrender. Yeah. And uh, um, I just thought that was the coolest thing. It was so full circle because Cheap Trick was so, I mean, we've met them a number of times over the years, uh, but but for them to ask them out there on stage, I thought was had to have been really a thrill for John and Gary, and it was really cool for me to see those two guys, the original, the core of the band, the original guys, mm-hmm. up on on stage doing it. So I, I included it in the book as the last picture of basically saying, you know, hey, we're still doing stuff. Yeah, no, it's cool for them too. It's cool for them that you know. That- like, because if you're on stage and they're playing, basically Rick starts playing to you. And it's like, hey, Rick, there's a bunch of people out there that paid to see you. He's like, oh, fuck those assholes. I'm going to play for you, you know. And it's so, I mean, they dig it, too. And and you figure those guys have probably, well, excluding the pandemic, they probably do 200 shows a year yeah. still. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if Robin's still smoking, but I mean, he's, he's I think he's still smoking. Yep. Smoke like a chimney for forty-five yeah. years and still have the best voice in rock and roll. I mean, how? Yeah, it's pretty uncanny, right? How do you do that? How do yeah. you do that? So, it, it, they they probably look for things to. Um, I used to say I didn't understand why rock bands threw TVs out of hotel windows, <laughs> but I understood it after you tour a little bit. You realize that's the only way you remember which city is Detroit or which city is you know is is when you say, oh, that's. Oh yeah, that's when you did this, or that's when you did that. It's, if you don't have something extraordinary happen, it, it fades away. If you yeah. would have had a perfect gig with them on that first time with you, Trick, you probably it probably wouldn't be as etched in your memory as the disaster. Yeah, it's definitely wouldn't have been a good as good of a story. I mean, it's the same reason why you know Chuck Berry would change keys on people in the middle of the song you know it's it's like this is too boring it's going too well it's like, that, no, that, don't do this that clip it's going where, well uh, uh richards is playing yeah and 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 chuck Berry says to me james key and richards is like no so, and oh, then he does it anyway he does it anyway oh my god <laughs> you see the thing about shoes is because we did we still don't know the names of chords i mean we know the major chords but everything is by memory Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how to play in a box. You know, like they, they, they talk about boxes on guitar right. or how to play in a certain key. I can't tell you what notes are in a key. It's all by memory. It's all by ear. So we're like five-year-olds on ice skates, you know, mm-hmm. where when one goes down, the whole line goes down. Yeah. If, if, we're, if we're playing live, we were doing a show once with Warren Zevon and, and the drummer 
we would get that, you know, in the habit of always kind of doing things the same way. And there was always this role before this one section. So it was kind of a cue that the drummer would do, we'd do this role and they crash and I, okay, now we're going here. And he <laughs> fucked it up one night and played it sort of halfway between this section. We're like, so half of us thought, oh, so this is where we're changing. And half of us thought must be the next go around. And it was a total clusterfuck train wreck. And we literally stopped playing. Right. I mean, the cardinal sin. We stopped. You can't do that. You yeah. can't do that. And we stopped playing because it was such a train wreck. And it, those are the things that you remember. And unfortunately, as Shoes Live, we have a lot of those memories. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, this was fun. And thanks for doing it. I, I You know, I'm, I will never pass up an opportunity to talk music with with music people and friends i just love it uh, you know and obviously you're a lifer you don't have the stripe you know the the the, the uh, um uh, the penitentiary uh, uh right. gear but um you're in it for for good you know you're in it for life a lot of people it's passing and now they're insurance salesmen or whatever they do and hey fine that's great but when you survive and you stick it out um there's it takes a certain kind of person to 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 to, to follow their their soul, you know. And I appreciate the fact that you do. Well, I learned it from you, man. Uh, or else there's something in the water in Zion. I don't know. <laughs> that atomic plant. You know, yeah. yeah. That your dad built. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, dude.